Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you if people send you the same generic conversation starters they message everyone else? Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. What's up, Gypsy gang? We are back for another episode of the Gypsy Tales podcast and pretty excited to be back in the studio. Uh, Hopefully we're about to go on a bit of a run of consistent podcasts um, now that I'm back from the trip up to Cape York. Uh, That trip up to Cape York is um, a big part of today's podcast. Uh, My guest today is Jason Thatcher. He is the owner of Vietnam Motorcycle Tours. Uh, If you've been following the podcast for a while, you would know that I uh, went on that trip with my family in February this year. Uh, That's when I first met Thatcher. And then from then on, um, we've just done another tour together, uh, which has been up to Cape York. he just come on that with us as uh, you know one of our mates, and then with sort of our other mates. So it uh, yeah, pretty awesome eight days up riding up Cape York. Um, but yeah, I just wanted to get Thatcher on the podcast to sort of talk about that trip as well as um, Vietnam motorcycle tours, his business that he runs. Um, that was one of the greatest experiences I've had um, in all of my travels. Um, so it'd be, yeah, just kind of cool to get him on and talk about that. And also he runs a charity called Global Village Housing, which builds houses for the poorest families in Cambodia. Um, and I just wanted to hear a little bit more about that. I actually, I would like to start a bit of a, maybe like a GoFundMe page or something, um, to, try and build a house for a family in Cambodia um, before we go and do uh, the Vietnam trip again next year. So it's kind of one of my little personal goals to try and make happen through the podcast, uh, make a bit of a difference because, yeah, we've sort of seen how some of those families live over there and, um, yeah, it's definitely crazy. So um, it was awesome for that to uh, join us on the podcast. Really enjoyed talking to him. He's one of the coolest guys I know. He's just done so much random stuff and uh, hopefully this podcast did uh, his story justice. And I mean, it would have taken a lot more than the two and a half hours that we did, um, to sort of cover everything that he's done in his life. Um, today's podcast is brought to you by the guys at nobby.com. That's it. That's all you got to go to nobby.com. Uh, and you will be able to sign up for your underwear, uh, that will just be delivered to your door every month. Uh, fresh design. Um, the last it's been awesome actually the last couple of months have just kind of snuck up on me they've gone by so quickly um so i feel like it's been a very short gap in between getting these new undies 
uh, and I love love these designs. So um, yeah, Nobby.com, 20 bucks a month. You really cannot go wrong. So many of the Gypsy Gang have uh, joined the nomination and I have yet to get one single uh, person saying that they regret their purchase and that is because that person doesn't exist. Uh, we are also brought to you by the legends at MX Store, mxstore.com.au for all of your motorcycle accessory needs. Um, some of the coolest dudes in the industry as well. Uh, a couple of my favorite people to be at races with. Um, they've got a, an amazing selection of um, of everything. They have everything. Um, so yeah, if you're interested in any of the new 2020 gear designs or you've just got a 2020 bike and you want to personalize that bad boy with some uh, some great aftermarket accessories and you cannot go wrong by heading to mxstore.com.au all right that's it for today um yeah like i said excited to go on a bit of a run with podcasts here in the next uh the next couple of weeks before we head to auckland uh we'll be going on the uh ben townley motorcycle tour uh right after the supercross in auckland and i am uh yeah super excited about it anyway back to jason thatcher thank you very much to everybody for listening and we'll talk to you soon And just like that, we're live with Jason Thatcher, the Hello. homie. Morning, mate. Um, so, a bit of an interesting story as to how you've become a guest on the Gypsy Tales podcast. So, I didn't know Thatcher from a bar of soap until February this year. We went to do one of your tours in Vietnam. So, my dad was raving about it. He did it in 2018, was raving about it come home basically forced all of us to go on it with him the next year wasn't like a hard sell obviously yeah um and then we went on that tour with you and we everyone got along amazing and then you show up at day in the dirt this year and then come on our cape york trip so i've only known you since february and we've spent basically a month on holidays in remote locations on motorcycles yeah it has been a bit um a lot in a very short time so but it's been very funny and you're uh yeah mate um and you've you, have you ever seen those Dosecchi's ads for like the world's most interesting man not really no oh so there's this <laughs> you know Dosecchi's <laughs> the beer yeah so there's an ad that they run and yeah. it's for the it's kind of an older gentleman much like yourself and he uh thanks mate he's the world's most interesting man and hey. you're, you're my version of the world's <laughs> most interesting man because every time we sit and have beer or wine or whatever after a ride some fucking <laughs> random story pops up and i'm just like who the fuck is this dude <laughs> so hopefully we can dig into a couple of those stories on the podcast there's a few stories yeah the one about your brother last night was pretty classic but we probably can't tell that one no maybe not <laughs> <laughs> oh big problem <laughs> maybe big problem <laughs> uh, so before we like obviously you own uh the vietnam motorcycle tours which runs out of vietnam and then cambodia motorcycle tours uh and then yep. you own a charity called global village housing which builds houses for very 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 underprivileged yeah. children and families in cambodia um but before we get into all that like what where did you kind of get your start like has everything kind of for you revolved around motorcycles and then that's been what sort of like guided everything that you've done in the businesses that you've got into and, and that sort of stuff like where did it all sort of start for you um Probably when I was about 15, uh, left school, got an apprenticeship, always wanted a motorbike. My mother wouldn't let me have one. Um, then I saved money and bought a motorbike. Lived in a small country town. Um, in Victoria, right? That's right, yeah. in Gippsland. Um, I had friends that had bikes, but uh, 
you know, at the end of the day, I was normally riding on my own. I started buying uh, forestry maps and essentially started doing a lot of remote riding on my own huh. in the high country. Yeah. And, um, Cause that's yeah, it was great adventure, you know. Often I was getting stuck on my own and didn't have much mechanical knowledge and things like that. And Still don't, arguably. Yeah. <laughs> well, I've seen yours, mate. <laughs> yeah. I think we're Opened on par. Open it a can of worms there. <laughs> that, that was one thing that really struck me with, with, like, the Vietnam ride that we did. You'd sort of always go, like, you're always going off and doing your own little thing. And then um, on the way here, like following you on facebook and stuff you just even dad was like fucking thatcher man like he always just finds some random thing and like we've driven between brisbane and cairns a thousand times never camped on any of the rivers and the shit like you just you always seem to find some kind of little adventure so obviously that's been like a thing yeah it definitely is i like getting into these places and, and just because there are places around you just gotta dig a bit deeper um and that's uh, and also for the sense of not only adventure but also for tours you want to be going to places yeah that you can basically say well no one else goes here because we know we're, we're the only ones that go there and i i think the big sell and the, the good interest is doing something you you really like personally yeah and if you stick with that it's that's what people they like themselves because you can you know you, you're not going to be on a guided bus tour or anything yeah. like that it's that you know it just all clicked though with like from being on the tour and then just seeing you as a person right. like you're actually yeah. so I wondered if that was a thing that you've always just been like this random adventure dude like I wondered where that come from you know yeah I think when I was younger a lot of my friends thought it was a bit odd you are I a just, bit odd thanks mate well I kind <laughs> of like way. a bit odd rather <laughs> than just being way. that generic <laughs> yeah. but yeah no I do like that disappearing and going into places and checking things out and you know that's adventure isn't it yeah and what was the original allure of a motorcycle to you because like for us it's easy like dad was a motorcycle like you've seen how hardcore in a bike he is so for yeah. us my earliest memories are on a motorcycle it's been such a consistent theme throughout my life yeah but it's interesting at for you it's like at 15 you're like wanting to get a motorcycle yeah i mean i did actually learn to ride my first ever bike i rode was a montessa uh trials bike when i was eight years old really? and that was very briefly it was a friend of mine's father owned it um and i think that was obviously that was a thing yeah. um yeah and i think always motorcycles have always appealed to me because they offer that adventure yeah that's the ticket to you know a bit of freedom and and stuff like that so yeah no definitely that was always a thing i'm only just figuring that adventure side of it out because mm. for me well, i was just in a motocross like that's all i wanted to do the yeah. racing and you've seen how competitive i am like and the way that i am with like jujitsu and stuff like that like yeah that's like a thing i like to be obsessed with a thing that can get better and yep. for me that was motocross like every yep. day you do a lap time and mm. it's whether it's by a hundredth or a tenth mm. or a, like i don't give a fuck mm. as long as i'm doing it it doesn't yep. matter how repetitive or mm. i just like that yeah and i never really a motorcycle to me was never like this ticket to freedom right. or an adventure yeah. thing i just didn't look at it through that lens and then this year in vietnam that was the first time where i was like fuck like we've mm. literally just rode across a country we saw the most random shit ever yeah. and then again in cape york was sort of took it even further because we were really in some remote sort of areas and well yeah it was an adventure yeah. 
No, absolutely. Um, and I think, yeah, that's right. As the years have gone on, I, I tend to be more and more adventurous and really finding, you know, deeper places. And like I said a while ago, I, I did uh, Hong Song Dong Cave, which is the, the biggest cave in the world and spent six days underground. And What was that about? You didn't tell me that. Didn't I? No. I thought I did. Say so the most interesting man in the world. <laughs> uh, so I was um, the. I think when I went in, there had been less than a hundred people in the world inside the cave. Where is that? Uh, it's um, just outside of Phong Na. Yeah. So okay. we kind of went past it on the Western Ho Chi Minh Trail, oh. um, and overall the hike's fifty five k's. It's pretty solid. No, you did tell me about this. Yeah. Actually, yeah. Um, and then I was with the. Uh, original team that explored the cave originally and, and stuff they lead the tours they're the only ones who've actually got the license to go in there oh. and when I pulled out my basic diving gear they go that's the first and I go what do you mean they go you're the first person to bring uh, basic diving gear into the cave so really so why. no one had dived the cave before no. you yeah huh. yeah and it was very basic gear and I just went for a bit of a look around because there's water that runs through the cave yeah but yeah no that was cool and so what was the um it's a 55k hike to get into it so it's like mostly you're climbing up like a mountain or how does it work <clears throat> uh you go down from the west what was the name of it again um hong song dong cave hong song dong yeah up. we're gonna get a visual yeah no it's pretty cool um so yeah a huge cave a bit of a story to it it was only found Jesus not Christ. that many years ago um it's got as you can see there it's got its own forest um in the middle and yeah i've been to all those little spots what? there um yeah no it's um it's off the hook it's certainly not for someone that um doesn't have experience well, yeah, and they, and they they actually said, you know, so there's a bit of a criteria, you know, you got to fill in questionnaires and all that to be to be accepted to go on it. And of course, a lot of people lie about their abilities and all that. And they were saying at the time that two thirds of the people that were doing the cave couldn't get through. Really? Yeah, and it was quite hard, and hardest thing I've ever done on my feet. Really? Yeah. And so what? Um, what is it? Just a long hike to get into it, or once you're in the cave, you've got to like go through it a bunch. Or yeah, like so it's um, from the Western Ho Chi Minh Trail. You drop down off the road. It's a really steep climb, steady climb down. Get down to a valley floor, follow the river. Uh, then you go through a cave called Hang In, um, and then continue your way. The cave itself was actually originally found by a poacher. Um, the British Caving Association had been exploring caves since the late 90s in Vietnam. And then they'd heard through some locals through other about this story of this guy. He'd found this cave and it had this mist coming out and it was making a noise and all that. So they eventually found the guy and they said to him, well, where's this cave? And he goes, well, I don't really remember. He was he was poaching with these other party big what storm what were they hit. trying to poach oh I think they'll poach on wildlife or whatever they do unfortunately what sort of wildlife would <coughs> be in there oh still tigers and oh really and yeah yeah no tigers shit. and monkeys and elephants and all sorts of things yeah. um, because it's it's very uh, remote um, and steep terrain and it, it works its way across to Laos um, so anyway I think they kind of like commissioned this guy to try and find it and it took quite some time to find it. And the actual cave entrance is really small considering the size yeah. of the cave. So you, you, if you're like, 
150 metres away from the cave entrance, you wouldn't actually know it was there. Mm. And so what you were saying about the... And you didn't go inside because it's, it's quite steep. You've actually got to abseil into the cave. Really? Yeah. And and so the noise is the, the... There's a river that runs through the cave and essentially I think that's what's carved the cave into its size so it's seasonal, it floods every year. Yeah. Uh, then it's got its own sort of atmosphere in there so it's got its own cloud system and what was coming out of the entrance was this foggy cloud and they were saying from my limited net knowledge of caves if there's cloud or mist coming out of a cave that's a big indication it's huge really and of course, because it would have its own atmosphere or whatever that's right so yeah and so once of course I went in there and I think they measured it with laser or whatever it is um, and uh, yeah and it turns out to be the, the biggest cave in the world and there's been less people inside the cave than people who have been to the top of Mount Everest really yeah so sure. Yeah, I, I did it in 2014. And how long did it take? Like, what was the trip? Have you got it? You've obviously got a camp to do it. Yeah, camping all the way. You've got porters that carry majority of the gear in and out. Yeah. Uh, so essentially, you just got a day pack. You got a, a helmet and headlight on. Um, you turn that off. It's pitch black. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is big. And what was the diving yeah. like? Oh, I didn't really see much, to be honest. There it was, was nothing to rave. Oh, no. Um, you know, there was sort of like some small fish and stuff like that, but I didn't sort of discover any unique species or yeah, anything yeah. like that. How did the yeah. fish get into a cave like that? I guess the water's got to come from somewhere, Yeah, right? it, it would be the flooding. Yeah. yeah, okay. I think they say that the water itself actually comes through from Laos. Yeah. So, yeah. That's like the water was that dad was saying the water at the Puntan Bay was coming from New Guinea or something because of like all the, the oh, springs yeah. that go like under the That's right, it does. Mm -hmm. uh, so um when when did you say you did that? Twenty fifteen. Twenty uh fourteen. Yeah, okay. So what yeah. what was your original like dealings with Vietnam and like that oh, yeah. it's obviously captivated you to the point where you know, like you've got a house there, you've run the tours yep. there, you've explored all through that country. Like what was it about that area that originally got you fascinated? Um, when I was growing up as a kid, my um, my stepfather's brother um, was one of the first regiments that went over for the Vietnam War. He was already in the army. Yeah. And so, you know, um, I think he'd done like a couple of stints over there and I'd often hear about them talking about, the, you know, different things. And, and so I was always quite interested in mm. about, you know, the Vietnam War and, and the people and all that sort of thing and, and Cambodia as well. Um, so I went there first time in '02, so really not that long ago. Yeah, right. Um, and in fact, that was my first overseas holiday. Was, no shit. Um, Vietnam. But it's insane how how much it's changed yeah. just in that sort of, you know, 17 years. It's been, yeah, pretty crazy, really. And do you just think that's like a Western influence or that it's developed more or like the manufacturing? Like what has changed about it? Uh, yeah, everything. I mean, it's just opened up now. Um, more so even now with, you know, the issue between uh, China and, and America, the trade wars and that sort of thing. It's just... Um, everything's happening in vietnam um vietnamese are very enterprising people smart um, yeah. hard working uh, great people um yeah 
awesome people to hang around. It's stunning country. It is an amazing yeah. countryside. I mean, I think you'd be pretty pushed to find anywhere more stunning, particularly in Asia, than Vietnam through the Central Highlands. And it's just the landscapes, you know, getting into remote villages. It was, to me, it's just a massive draw card. Yeah. Um, just seeing, I think a lot of it's the culture. Yeah. It's just got that such deep culture that's, you know, that we just don't have that in Australia. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I love it. Um, and what was the first, like, what did you do on that first trip? Um, did you have any intentions then of like no, starting anything? No, was not at any? all. No, I purely just went there for, for a look. Um, and then I come back. Um, it was certainly quite a big eye opener to me. Um, the first, then, was that your first time seeing like legitimate poverty and stuff like that? Yeah. That's always pretty heavy when you go to a third world country for the first time. Yeah, I found it quite confronting. Um, certainly found I was certainly felt out of my depth, and I think it was a really good thing for me yeah. to do that. Uh, and then you know when I come back, it was just sort of game on. I was keen to, to go back, and um, eventually um, I organised to do a ride. Yeah. Um, and then once I started riding, um, yeah, that was a big thing. I was getting into places that yeah no one had been before, and yeah. I just thought, I can't believe that no one's doing this. And there was actually a couple of local tour operators kicking around, but they were pretty... Dodgy. Yeah. Well, I gotta, yeah. I got to text Sam and tell him to turn that music down. He's killing me right now. You got to, you know, it, it was one of those things that um, to get a to hire a bike in the country, you know, you'd be lucky if it had either brakes on the front or a brake on the back. Yeah. Exhaust would be wide on. Yeah, ball tires. Just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. wide on. Yeah, <laughs> you know, all that sort of thing. All that, all that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I see what you're saying. <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, so you um, did that that first trip, and then yeah. d- is that what then sparked your interest to go like, all right, I'm gonna do this sort of tour thing? Or yeah, I, I, I certainly thought that there was a, a good opportunity there, um, and then once a you know, because I was touring on my own I had all this you know so getting all these ideas and things like that you do have a lot um, of time to think on, you, you, you on a do. bike when you're sort of touring around you do and I think yeah it's a really good thing in itself um, and then I was kind of once I did get something going I started as a as a bit of a hobby and I thought you know if I could cover my odd flight here and there that'd be really cool yeah bought a couple of bikes and um, started doing a bit of marketing I'm pretty good at marketing and stuff. And yeah. A bit of here, a bit of there. And it just started taking off. You yeah. Know? Certainly a bit of, you know, a fair bit of hard work in the end. And sort of pushing the boundaries too because um, for Westerners doing that type of work in the country, um, yeah, it was a bit of a, a new thing. Yeah. So, you know, we're sort of flying under the radar a bit. Um, and then, yeah, just sort of just sort of growing and, and you know getting the right connections and being properly registered and that sort of stuff and are you ever ever properly registered though in vietnam <laughs> no no but i no no really no we are a, 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 yeah, a yeah. company and all that thing. yeah yeah no yeah. just like we we get these uh we got like licenses and stuff and it's like well i mean you've kind of got a lot like i have a vietnamese driver's license yeah. but it's like do you really have a vietnamese yeah. driver's license <laughs> Well, actually, in, in, interesting enough, because it has been an issue for uh, Australian riders, because essentially an Australian international license is not 
fishing. Doesn't really mean anything. No, no in Vietnam. Uh, I so, don't think it really means anything anywhere though, because like no. that was the same thing in the US. Like mm-hmm. I never got one of those international drivers license because I asked somebody over there, and I've actually I actually had to go to court once for not having a, a California driver's license. All oh, right, and yeah. basically like they can be dicks to the point where. If you don't have a California driver's license, you technically can't drive in California. Right. So even if you come from Texas, come from anywhere, oh, they, right. they can technically right. write you off for, for yep. anything. So yeah, all those, I would mm. used to just laugh like mum used to stress about getting international licenses and stuff when they went over there. I was like, just don't even, don't even bother. Yeah. So, I mean, well, we've now gone through the hoops and hurdles um, and we are, in fact, the only operator in the country doing official licensing. So, um, it's a temporary license um, while you're touring with us in the country, but it is a real license. And interestingly enough, we actually found the official government site where you can go on there, you've got your license number that you receive from there, type that number in, if your name appears, it's real. Really? If it doesn't appear, it's not real, which is interesting because once we started doing it, I got my license out, which I've had for years over there, typed my number in, nothing. So all these years, I've actually been running a fake license. Not that I've actually ever been asked for it. Yeah. So now I've just gone through the hoops and hurdles to get a real one myself. <laughs> so how, how long from um, that first trip until you guys actually started running like the tours um and how how big was the first was it kind of small to start with or two riders for the first one yeah damn that would have been crazy yeah two riders um so sort of late 07 was officially um when we kicked off and then things really sort of started happening in 08 yeah uh and that's when i sort of made started making um I kind of had a bit of an exit strategy for my business in Australia and I had a, like a bit of a three-year plan to get out of that and uh, that sort of turned into about four years. Um, but yeah, you know, um, started marketing the tours and um, yeah, kicked on and now we've had groups up to 30 riders at a time. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and it's yeah. a super like well-oiled thing nowadays. Yeah. Like the basically we landed you guys had a driver pick us up once we got out of the airport and yep. had to pay for maddie yep. to leave the airport and then you get there the all the bikes are laid out there's a there's two support vehicles one takes all the bags and a spare bike and then there's mm. a van that actually stops behind you because the truck sort of is a can will go like a different way to That's sort of right. meet you yep. um at the hotel and then basically every morning all we had to do was get up leave the hotel which are all nice hotels and uh just ride for however many kilometers it was through through the countryside and really there's not a lot of highway riding or anything like that it's um it's very yeah very uh, well like i guess your slogan is see the real vietnam and that's really what it is like you, you go yeah. into some crazy places yeah no we certainly tr- you know that is the thing uh keeping off the main highways yeah getting into these twisty mountain back roads and through these remote villages and you know the, the big thing for a lot of people is you know the kids waving at you yeah. you know they just stand there waving at you and all the locals are super friendly and yeah pretty and much like, like everyone wants to wave at you the whole yeah. time that it's like a it's like a motorcade of rock stars sort of touring through yeah, the country yeah I, I say to people you know if you want to experience what it feels like to be famous come and ride with us in vietnam because it's just 
incredible yeah especially yeah. like we had ricky and ash with us yeah and like two blonde girls and like everyone's freaking out on the girls everywhere you went they wanted to take photos with the girls and stuff even well that's right because you know pretty much everyone in asia's got um you dark know, hair. They're so high and dark hair so yeah blondes um yeah stand out and uh yeah no so it's, it's quite a novelty to them as well you know um and then so when did you like when did it get to the point where you're like okay this is like gonna just this is a lifestyle now like this is how i'm sort of gonna like spend my time it took a while like i I literally sort of was running our money on a regular basis and just going yeah this is you know so i just kept working at it um you know pushing to get obviously more tours and 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 the likes and so that was the real thing i guess it's like any business when you start yeah. businesses you know it's hard work you know it you've got to put solid effort into it and you know it's it's easy for an outsider to look at anyone's business and go hey that's an awesome business i want to get into it yeah they just don't you know people don't realize how much work you do need to put into it um so yeah um i think realistically i think maybe from about 2010 2011 i knew it was really so it was like four or five years of, yeah yeah um so you know i still had a, a small stream of income coming um, from other things um so that sort of helped um along the way um working out marketing strategies having the right team um as you know meeting our guides and crew yeah. i mean they really make the tours and yeah. often a lot of people say you know they they just absolutely love them and so they're really good and i've also had a, a very much a strong focus on looking after the team and crew well so they're really well you paid. pay like western wages pretty much pretty huh? much yeah. yeah and um so you know not only they great guys they love their work and they're super loyal and if i'm not there everything runs like clockwork and um yeah no we've got a really good team uh that's certainly important to have yeah we um we got on so well with like all the all the guys and it's like there's so much like i don't know they just make it so fun it's it's funny too how the first few days everyone's figuring each other out like mum and dad was different because they sort of knew them all from the tour before but we're all sort of you know like Leon and Benny and you know yeah. you're sort of figuring these dudes out and after three days it's like fucking ten bottles of, of vodka on the table and everyone's yeah. getting lit up and you know it's sort of like it's such a cool way to meet interesting people and if you're uh, I mean it sounds like we're doing a fucking ad here but like it was such a I great we it, were. It's, such a, <laughs> it's such a great experience you yeah. know and I actually haven't spoke about it that much on the podcast yeah. but it was like you know the people are it's like like-minded people yeah if you it's a it's a definitely a certain type of person that is going to want to spend 10 days on a motorcycle through a yeah you know an asian country so it's like already you've yeah. kind of got a bit of a box of certain eclectic people and then you sort of mix them all together but by that you know yeah. that four three four day mark everyone's really sort of gelled and there's like a really cool yeah. group vibe going you know I say to people that um, the real highlight of the tours these days for me is the people that I meet yeah. and the friendships of the form. So essentially, you know, our tours are very much marketed for experienced riders only. So we don't cater for like backpackers and first timers. I mean, why would you want to go on a big motorbike tour, particularly in another country and you're riding with people that have... Very all, limited experience. That's right. Um, so you've got that common interest already. Everyone's motorbike riders and, you know, got that that, that interest. Um, and the friendships are the form that often, you know, we have these open tour events that 
anyone can jump on um and of course you know no one knows one another you know or there could be a couple of friends or whatever and that's right and by the end of the tour everyone's such good friends and we've had people that have come back for an, another tour and yeah. it's the same group yeah that didn't know one another and they've all become such good friends and stuff like that so yeah no that's definitely a real highlight well that's sort of how as was with us like mm. leon and yeah. Benny and those boys yeah. and then it, it was it's pretty cool like since since vietnam then you jumped on board and sponsored to uh tro toby's trophy truck yeah and then uh leon flew out in his helicopter you yeah. guys flew out from there yeah. so like the whole i don't know it seemed like the whole crew just like Stuck we just together. stayed together for yeah. basically this whole year and then obviously cape york yeah no absolutely yeah that's and that's how it's it's kind of been happening for a number of years and yeah it's it's amazing yeah, yeah it's such a yeah it was it's such a cool thing to just see that again it's sort of that common interest you know like the fact that you're you're it's mm. set like an experienced writer mm. and then you're um you know you've got that common interest it's pretty easy to stay friends or, and sort of like create that's right that friendship and it's not the thing too that i would tell people it's not easy like it's not an easy ride i wouldn't say you just go there and it's just like 25 minutes till the next spot like some yep. days you're doing big days a lot of turns a lot of traffic it you know you mm. need to be on your shit but i think that is what makes people bond even more is because by the end of it when that beer is there and it's icy cold like you fucking earn that beer and i think yeah. everyone feels like they have earned that beer together which yeah. makes it even better yeah it does definitely feel like a real achievement um yeah it's a lot of adventure you know you're in a different country you're riding on the opposite side of the road with bikes that are different to what you'd normally ride yeah that's right um the locals dealing with how the locals ride and what but and once you get the feel through it you know it's kind of because some people say oh my god how can you ride in vietnam i've seen the traffic over there and it's crazy and i go well we it's actually don't works it does work you know it's a, i said to people it's actually easier to ride than it is to cross the road and w once you're in it yeah i mean when you look at you know you're, you might be mum riding the kids to school and uh they got um, a couple of kids asleep and a baby and and the shopping and, and yeah. all sort of stuff um yeah no it's um it's it, it does work really well yeah the, the first it, it's sort of the same as cape york like this is sort of why i've been liking doing these trips lately yeah. it's because you're so out of your comfort zone mm. on the first couple of days yeah everything's new the bikes are new yeah. the way that people people ride in the country's new mm. you're dealing with the traffic you're sort of on edge the whole time you're worrying about different things and mm. then after a couple of days this thing that was so out of your comfort zone is you it's like your body just accepts it yeah and then you sort of start to enjoy it and it's such a cool thing to be like you know on edge about something and really you know kind of mm. making sure like hyper aware mm. and then you start to feel the flow of of what's going on around you and then it's like you sort of level up in a way and then it was like that at cape york as well yeah I, I, you know, to me that's the draw card you know is pu pushing that boundary and i mean you know for us you know we're there's riding through rivers and there's signs there recent crocodile sightings <laughs> and going sweet that'd be good to do a wheelie through and then sure enough there was a crocodile on the other side of the river laying there Four in the sun bad boy too yeah do where we pull up that this it's uh through llama llama national park which is like a aboriginal reserve and we stop at this lagoon and jason's like oh i reckon there's any crocs in there and i'm like one hundred thousand percent there is crocodiles <laughs> in there and then he's so close to the water and i'm like 
bro, for real. Like, there's really crocs in there. Like, you cannot go near there, eh? And and then we saw a croc, like, probably an hour after that on, yeah. on another one of the, the banks. It's no joke up there. Yeah, there was even... We stopped at one place um, and I walked for a bit of a... Oh, along the yeah, river. yeah, yeah. The Kendall, and, and I Kendall actually, River Crossing. Yeah, and I heard one go in the water. Yeah, you just don't know they're there, right? Yeah, it's cool. I like <laughs> it's, it. It's fucking scary, though. <laughs> no, I, I, yeah, I'm, I like all that sort of thing. Yeah, but there, there's so yeah. many people. Like, I remember... Get eaten. Yeah, oh, we went up there once when we were young to, I um, want to say, like, Kaunyama or something, mm. and then, like, an Asian tourist. <laughs> out of there. Yeah, right. Gone. Like, while we are up there. It used to happen a bunch, eh? I mean, I say, yeah, I used to be the diving, bit of wreck diving and shark diving and stuff. And people used to go, man, that's like really dangerous diving with sharks. And I go, well, the good thing is, you know, you it's a bit like shark. sharks. Well, if you get eaten by a shark, 100% front page. <laughs> you yeah. get run over by a bus, you don't even get a mention. <laughs> so, you know, and they go, man, that's a really fucked up way of looking at things. And go, well, but it's true though, right? <laughs> you make a headline. <laughs> yeah. What? When did you get into the diving stuff? Because that's a... That's that's something like I've been watching that um, sailing La Vagabond. Yeah, that we were talking about yeah, that the other day. That's so good. Have you ever seen that? No. Type into YouTube sailing La Vagabond right now. It will fucking blow your mind. Yeah. Dude. So we that were, is insane. I we, love that. Show. We were talking. Yeah. Well, you, I first saw it. My buddy Andrew texts it to me. And it's like mm. you got to have a look at these dudes. And then I said something, and you're like, you said something about sailing. Hmm. and then you're like oh there's this couple I was like dude I've just started watching this YouTube channel we were talking about yeah. the same thing um, yeah so they've got 1.12 million yeah, subscribers yeah so they've got a, a baby now and I, I must have missed a couple of episodes because all of a sudden there was this baby and going where did they get this kid from <laughs> it is the most <laughs> yeah. gorgeous kid you've ever seen as well um, but yeah basically this couple they I watched a thing on like how they met I, I hmm. want to go back we're living an interesting time yeah where this is like a thing mm. it's, i guess the same as this podcast but mm. um but yeah so I, I i'm gonna actually go back i'm gonna stop watching all the new stuff and i'm gonna go back and i'm gonna watch it from the very first episode yeah you're because saying, it's yeah. like a it's like a crazy like almost like a tv series but it's like self-produced um so yeah that's a little baby learning. yeah it's, it's just so well done and i just love how the fact she goes spearfishing yeah. and they did you, you watch the one where they go um and they both look like sharks? they kind of look like a bit of a hollywood couple aren't they like yeah. i mean they're both very good looking quintessential hot australian couple yeah have you ever yeah. seen them nah this this to me is jack freestone and alana yeah He's yeah diving oh 100 yeah. percent. so um but yeah so i was listening to like the story of how they met and because uh, I'm like, I'll watch this and then I'm going to go back. I'm yeah. going to start it from from zero. But um, she was working in uh, in this like somewhere in Mykonos and then he was on the oil rigs like flying in, flying out. Oh, right. And I think it'd stay in Greece and then he bought a yacht and I think essentially it was just a way for him to fucking get pussy basically. Yeah, so right. then he yeah, ends yeah. up get it, he ends up meeting her yeah. and takes her for a sale. And he'd done Milo Fine there by the way. I know he's killing it. Yeah. But so that he, they went on this sale and he was saying or they were both sort of telling this story of like it was basically the best sale you could ever have. Like mm. the, there was enough wind to sail, but yeah. there wasn't a ripple of a, like a ripple on the water. So yeah. it was just this perfect day and basically yeah. he asked her then to like move on to this boat and I think that's sort of a, extreme paraphrasing here but that was five years ago dude 
and they've literally they've got what three boats since then i think they've gone yeah, up through like all, three yachts yeah that's right they're on the from when well, i first saw watching them they're on a mono hole and do they produce this all they make it all themselves mm. man it's legit yeah it's mm. insane so like mm. that and you can see i watched a couple of their old and i videos. love the spear fishing yeah. oh yeah dude there was an episode that i watched yesterday where they um, went to some island, it's like called Shark Island or something, with all the tiger sharks in the Mm. Caribbean, and they were diving with these tiger sharks. So yeah, they just all of, they do all of them themselves, but you watch like the production quality, like you can see that it was just a very basic sort of production, and then they've just gotten so much better, like over Mm. five years of producing content. I'm just, I'm fully captivated by by them at the moment, and I I want them to come on the podcast so bad. I think it'd be so crazy. Yeah. No, they they definitely are naturals at what they do. Yeah, they don't try, they don't try hard at all, though. But it's it's crazy, like, that's the time that we live in now. And I think that um, it's even it makes stuff like what you're doing even so much easier to be successful because people can share these stories now of Mm -hmm. like going to Vietnam, doing Mm. these kind of tours. Uh, Mm. And I think people like these guys make, it's like aspirational now to like go out and like you can go on an adventure. Anyone can do it. Um, And I think it's one of those things, you remember the, 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 there was two English couples that were yeah, on tour yeah, with us. Yeah, yeah. And there was the father and daughter. Yeah. And she was saying she'd been to Vietnam before. Yeah. And she didn't ride. And she'd been right from, you know, the south to the north. And she said she thought she'd seen all of it. And then she come back and she was pillion with her dad. And she just said she couldn't believe what she was seeing. She said it was just a whole new level and she didn't even know that it existed. Yeah. And that was the thing, and that is the thing for us, is to get to people to really see push your boundaries a little bit yeah get away from these hotels you know and sitting around pools and yeah you know following people from one city to another and get out into these and what and, and also you're supporting these local villages you know you we're buying whether it's a yeah beer or local food and stuff like that so it works that, you know in a, in, in a lot of different levels that's a new trend that i've seen amongst a lot of my friends a mm. lot of just people in general is that that whole like holiday to go and do nothing thing is sort of dying out now eh? yeah. like i'm pretty well fucked when i come back from a holiday like i'm exhausted i need yeah, and to, i need a, to have like days of like mm. my normal life almost feels more cruisy than my holidays these days yeah and that, yeah and that's how it should be you know it's all about adventure um why why would you go on the other side of the world to sit in a hotel pool yeah I mean, you might as well just sit in your own backyard. That was the thing for a long time, though, right? Yeah, I don't get that. Yeah, I don't. But that that used to be the thing. You'd go to Hawaii and then you'd sort of just lay on the beach and do basically nothing. But now when I think about Hawaii, I think about diving. I think about volcanoes. I think about all these crazy hikes. It just seems people that go hunting now that are like traveling the world to hunt and, you know, guys like these just literally traveling around the world on a boat for five years. Like, you know. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, there's one there. It's had 4.1 million views. Oh yeah. (laughs) Nothing to do with the thumbnail. Um, (laughs) (laughs) no nothing at all (laughs) um but yeah no it's like it's a it's a crazy trend that's happening and not like Mm. i think that well i mean vietnam was probably my first legitimate holiday in 
like I don't remember because my life has been structured around yeah like I would travel to film like mm. I'd go to Alaska and I'd be filming mm. but it was sort of like a holiday but an adventure because I was on a snowmobile with all my cameras and right, riding okay. up a peak to try yeah. and get an angle mm. but I'm like two miles away mm. from everybody else like shooting yeah. so everything sort of felt like that in a way but that was sort of my job yeah but then Vietnam was probably the first time mm. where I just had like a holiday and it was that adventure style holiday. Yeah, I, I think with these adventure style holidays too, it's it's also opening the the window and having that real perspective on how the other how people other live. people live. Yeah. Um and in a lot of cases, you know, going to areas where there is poverty, but people go you know, and it's a big thing for Westerners, they go, But everyone's so, so happy. happy and they go, I don't get it, you know. And in some cases where I've worked in extreme poverty, as you know, over the years, um, you'll get there. I've worked with families that live on rubbish dumps and um, and they're all smiling and people go, what are they all smiling? I go, well, they've, they've literally got nothing to worry about. Yeah. You know, us living in the Western world, you know, got loans and debts and bills and this and that. These people got nothing. Their, their main thing is, you know... Survival. Uh, survival and, and having food and... And that's it, and um, and I think that really it's a very grounding experience for a lot of people, and it often has people got walking away, yeah, you know, a, a tad bit of a, a look at themselves and yeah. going, "Geez, I've you know I really don't, I shouldn't be complaining like I do, and yeah, maybe I am a bit greedy or whatever, you know." And I think it's a it's a good thing. I I certainly found that changed my outlook on life, yeah, dramatically. I think mm. it becomes easier to understand. Um, like people could say like like oh how could people in asia kill and eat dogs mm. and you're like well well they've been eating hot dogs in australia for years <laughs> right <laughs> but it's like <laughs> they've got nothing else to eat like it's very you know what i mean like the, if people are doing that it's like there's yeah. situations that people are in mm. and it's like it's mm. so easy to be judgmental about different cultures when they don't do things the way that we do it but it's like yeah. when you've got nothing and you just need to eat something like you know well and and that's right and and i think some in some sort of cases where people sort of said to me you know you know some people are quite upset about the whole dog thing and it's it's probably it's it's not as big in vietnam it's some yeah, people vietnam, like, it's more china eh? yeah you know and but it's just an example of the, yeah. those little cultural differences yeah that, that freaks people that people out. will yeah but it just becomes easy to understand like where people are coming from when yeah you just see like the poverty and how hard it is for people just to survive and there's little things that you know you're like okay i get it it's mm. uh, it's easy it becomes easier not to judge certain things when you've sort of seen it firsthand right that's right yeah i mean that's all you know similar to people eating insects and and all that yeah often all that started from not being able to obtain a normal source of protein and it becomes a staple diet well we saw <laughs> that was one of the like the more memorable parts of the trip was when we were I can't remember where we were but we we're yeah. coming around a, a corner and there's a cow hogtied on a on a big old stick and the whole village is there with this cow and then this dude literally as we come around the bend just slits this cow's throat and it just the blood <laughs> come out of this thing and like fucking rattled Ricky and Ash <laughs> like and then right after it someone run over a chicken <laughs> but it was like that's fucking life like there's no there's no like 
Woolworths to no. go and just get your steak yeah. in a cellophane, you know, foam container. Like, yeah. you want steak? You got all this village that... And the villages, well, it was crazy too that some of them are like, the, it's just, there's the only space they've got. So there's a road that goes through a river and there's just people that just build a little group of houses on either side of the road and that's yeah. a village and that's yeah. where they live. Yeah, pretty much. You, you know, and talking about the fresh meat that often, you know, there'll be some lady there, she's got a little table with some things freshly chopped up and often it'll have like the cow's head and that's shown... That's that a cow. That's the cow and it's fresh because you can look at its eyes and things like that and go, yeah, it's fresh. <laughs> now, so, I think it's still moon, but, you know. <laughs> Super fresh. Yeah. But yeah, we literally come around this turn and as we hit the apex of the turn, we're both like, that's weird. There's a cow there. <laughs> just <laughs> cut its throat right as we looked at it and it just sprayed blood everywhere. And like, I could feel, obviously, you can't talk to each other on the bike, yeah. but Ricky's just like squeezed up <laughs> like, what the fuck? But, and it's like you become sort of desensitized to it in a way because Mm. you just you're there for so long and you're like living it's not like a um that's just like a tour group and you're in and out and then Mm. you see this little village for a day or half a day and you walk around it and then you go back to your tour and you kind of go it's like you're literally for 10 days you're like living in all of these villages and Mm. there was one day where we stopped we'd rode up that hill it was when we were on the border of laos right up sort of the top okay. and then we had the had lunch with that family with the old guy with the colonel jacket on yeah that's where they had the the big bamboo water wheels that were feeding yeah, the rice terraces yeah yeah, yeah that's yeah, they, nice through there isn't it they still had these um water wheels that mm. would f- uh, carry water up to the rice fields that were made out of bamboo like everything is still yeah you should google that shit there's still so like yeah they just haven't changed tt eh? and i found that little back road when we were mapping out the road to lao tour yeah and i'm sure to this day we are the only ones that go through that area the kids are, are, yeah some of them had never seen white people yeah never seen westerners yeah. and like mm-hmm. the um i can't remember yeah, yeah look, that's at, look it. at them man yeah. that's still what they use over yeah. there and often uh, they can get wiped out each year from the seasonal rains and floods, so they they rebuild them and or move them and that sort of thing. But the, you know, to to watch the the fact that they're all built out of bamboo and work so well, and it's amazing, you know. Just the the hard work, yeah. That Vietnamese people, mm. and I mean a lot of those countries through Asia, obviously, mm. but like just the insane amounts of hard work that these guys put in. The Vietnamese are so good at growing things. So you'll be riding along and if there's, if you do get on a main road, there might be like a medium strip in the middle and there'll be a vegetable garden growing yeah. there. You're like, Nothing's wasted. And they're just so great at all these fresh veggies. and Yeah, it's a very uh, rich country um, in that sense, you know. Yeah. You know, they're so lucky that they've got the mountain range. It's a narrow country. They've got like over 2,000 kilometres of coastline. Um. Yeah, that's just visually stunning, isn't it? Really, well, the I think that I, I I've been a lot of places. Mm. Like I've been to Alaska. Yep. I've flown around Hawaii in helicopters. I've been all through South America. Been all through the U.S. Obviously, mm. grew up in Cairns with the mm. Daintree, all yep. the way up to Cape York. I've yep. been basically everywhere in Australia, mm. Tasmania. So I've seen a lot of shit, and yep. that that ride that we did on the western ho chi minh trail was 
fucking astounding. Like, could just couldn't believe what I was seeing. And especially mm. before we got to Fong Na. Mm. And then you get to Fong Na and there's all of the, the cliff faces. It's just the most insane. And it's untouched. There was just one road, thousands and thousands of bends. And there's no one on it, so we were just racing like six wide, Moto around, three, yeah, full Moto three style through this, through the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and uh, and the whole time it's just such a, a trip. You're like, how is this? How is this real? And how is there nobody here? Yeah, and it's like it's just never been touched. Yeah, it's insane landscape. So I haven't seen the most recent King Kong movie, but that was actually filmed uh, just ah. up past uh, Phong Na. Type so, Fong Na in me. Yeah, it's insane. Uh, it's, is it PH or is it F O N G? Uh, P H O N G. Yeah, Fong Na. Yeah. Yeah. That's the cave. So we, we went, that that was the day that we went in and did. We like did a that cave one tour. there with the river. So we remember we went into that cave. Yeah. So Fong Na Cave went in there by boat. Yeah. How crazy is we put the drone up? Yeah, just outside the, the entrance. Yeah, so they're, they're, they've got the entrance to that cave yeah. and then we, we we put the drone up and we we're getting some drone footage. If you go on my personal Instagram, I think it's on there, but there's a picture of... Um, All the bomb craters. Yeah, so I put the drone up mm. and the, in the war, dude, they've tried to bomb that cave opening because like mm. the Viet Cong would be hiding stuff in the um in the caves because they obviously like you when you're flying over it you can't see it so then yep. there was just bomb like bomb craters everywhere and they just filled round. up into yeah these round bomb craters filled up like swimming pools and they were just literally littered that was that was one of the more um eye-opening things because mm. like you know about the war well not and, and even i didn't know that those you didn't um, even know they were there. Not, not right there no. how long have you been going to those caves for um i think i've went there the first time maybe about um nine years ago really so mm. for nine years and you didn't know that that was like a heavily bombed area i mean oh, you yeah. probably assume it was heavily bombed <laughs> yeah so the rice fields and that the rice fields and that sort of back out towards the main road yeah you could used to see the the bomb craters there but since they're sort of like being plowed in and things like that but that actual entrance where we um we put the drone up um, on that other side there no one really goes into that spot except for the locals but I'll be making the point what I want to do next time I'm up there Yeah, I want to swim in one of the middle of those uh, bomb craters that's full of water and yeah. get, a, get a aerial get a shot, shot you know, yeah. that'd be really cool yeah that, that that was one of the more yeah so that's just through the mm. the landscape and it's yeah. still there like they, yeah. they just haven't really I mean I'm sure they would probably use them for like yeah, because because like that. that river itself, it's actually not that far from the ocean. So they would bring supplies down, and then up the river, and then hide because you know, as you've seen, how big that cave was inside. Oh, massive! You can imagine. I've always said to people, I'd love to dive it because I I don't know of anyone that's actually dived in that cave because you know it's fairly clear in there different times of the year. It'd be great dive because I'm sure there'd be stuff in the bottom, like from the war. Yeah, it's just stuff that's falling off the boat or yeah yeah whatever you'd have to think so do you know yeah. how deep that cave is are those no, caves super deep i know but I, I know that it goes through a long way i think um the back of that cave well they say that that the river that feeds through that cave goes right through to laos really yeah 
That's crazy. Yeah, so it's like 40 kilometers or something like that. How far could you dive in and come back? Or with well, those cave dives? Because the water goes up and down. Yeah. So certain times of year you can penetrate your cave. So there are people going in there and going further in, you know, a lot further. I, I think we went in, you know, like maybe a kilometer or something like that. Yeah. When we did it. Um, but yeah, no, you can go a long way. But what about diving though? Like how how long do you, how far do you think you could get into a cave like that from, oh, with diving? It depend on how far you get the gear into. Um, and then if you're only shallow diving, you can, you know, obviously go a lot further and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. So how does it, have you done much cave diving stuff before? Because that's some not, super interesting. Like I've... Not so much freshwater stuff. So I've died... Probably the best cave I've dived was the Cathedral Cave in Tasmania. Oh, really? Which is down down near Port Arthur. Yeah. Uh, Eagle Hawk Neck, down that area, around Fortescue Bay. Um, yeah, that's a pretty cool cave. bit sketchy. but With, like, sharks and stuff? Or? Well, yeah. I mean, sort of, you just get this big... A big surges going through it so you've got to be oh. really careful when the surge comes through you don't get knocked out yeah um and Dude, the read that the, re- the reason they call it the cathedral as you can sort of see there there's a lot of side entrances so it kind of looks like light coming through a church window or yeah, something like yeah. that was, and a, a lot of sharks go in there to to rest um what kind of sharks go in there Oh, I don't know. I mean, we'd seen a few different sharks when we were in there. I'm not really sure what they were. Uh, nothing, nothing particularly big. Yeah. But when you come out of the cave, so there's a main entrance into the cave. We we went in there, um, went offshore on this old shark cat, and the the boat operator was an ex ab diver, and they're all lunatics. Like, you know, it's props out the water all the way. Yeah, I don't know. The swell looks a bit big. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> so anyway, we go out, and then once we get close to the cave, he goes, "All right, you fuckers. Once I get in there, get the fuck out. Otherwise, we're gonna smash the boat up." Going, okay, well that's pretty sketchy. And you got huge surge. So anyway, we're in, and we've got maps, and that's it. And then you got to come out. You can't come out the same way we went in. So you pop out through a side, and when you look up, because it's you know it's like two hundred foot rock face or whatever it's like a big washing machine with a surge hitting there you gotta push right out past that then you pop up inflate your marker boy and then you gotta wait for old mate to to find you and i think we were in the water for about i don't know half an hour well it felt like half an hour before we got picked up and so you just take turns and watching watching out for noahs and (laughs) uh yeah I think that's probably the, the more sketchy part is when you're just bobbing around the water and waiting for it. Because one minute you see the boat and because it's such... The swells are so... Yeah, yeah, and then next thing, you know, once it's gone down, he's already gone and, yeah, so it takes a while to get picked up. But, yeah, good fun though. And so what's the deal with, like, the... So the cave... There's, like, actual cave maps and you're sort of, like, trying to decipher where you're at based on, like, different uh, landscapes. Yeah, it's a pretty thing. simple map. Just a rough sketch overall. And a couple of indications of where you should be popping out. So you're with your buddy and, you know. What's the appeal of it? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think it's like anything. It's the adventure. Yeah. Because um, it just doing, seems doing like things, so much shit could go wrong. Uh, well, yeah, it can. Uh, yeah, because apparently <laughs> it was a bit of a disaster 12 months to the day dot of what when we had done it. So they were telling us that just before we are getting in the water yeah um and um so yeah i think the the appeal it's just that doing things that other people don't do yeah 
good bragging rights. It know? just seems so scary to be under... Like, I'm not a big... Like, we would do a lot of fishing and spear yep. fishing and it was mm. shallow coral, coral mm. reefs, really. Yep. I never... I've never even scuba dived. Like, right. we've done a lot of diving, yep. like free diving and stuff like that. Yep. But, like, I just never... Like, we'd, we'd do some stuff where you're sort of on, like, the edge of the shelf. Yeah. And you're in, you know, 30 foot of water and then right there it's just blackness yeah. and you you can like i've had times where i've swum over to like the edge where you can yeah. drop off and you're just like fuck all this like that's that's space down there yeah kind like, of, yeah you know and and that's really seems mm. like what it is like that's our version of outer space is diving in really yeah. deep water yeah and they that say that seems fucking scary to me i, I dived the nord um which is oh no that's only it there um the Nord, which is just nearby, and I think that's in forty-six meters of water, and that was one of the deepest dives I've done. And um, you, you know, it's just an old wreck, and there's not much of it. It's pretty much some boilers, and and yeah, that's it. The Nord, Nord, yep. And whereabouts that is that? Uh, Eagle Hawk Neck in Tasmania. Yeah, right. And it's pitch black once you're down there, you know. So those yeah. photos there would be just lit by the lights that are mm, around. Yeah. It. Yeah, it looks quite bright there, actually. But, yeah, no, it's pretty dark. When did you start, like, when did you get into diving? Uh, early 2000, I think it was. What? Yeah. How old would you have been then? Um, 30s. Yeah, okay. Yeah, early 30s. Um, yeah, so I got into it and um, just sort of, yeah, continue. Oh, but with that said, I actually haven't dived on air now for years. Um I do a bit of free diving and a bit of spear fishing when I get the opportunity. I just bought some new stuff in cans, actually. Oh, did you? Yeah, so I've got two new guns in the back of the car. The, the old Defender's rigged out now, isn't it? Is. it? It's got, yeah. got all the toys on it. It has, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it is, it's interesting. Like, I, I don't know whether it's an age thing or whatever, but I'm 31 now, and I feel like I'm just now finding... Have you, have you been sick for long? No, not not too long. <laughs> <laughs> One kidney. No. Um, but I'm like starting to find now that I'm getting more enticed by this sort of stuff. Like, yeah. did that sort of happen to you that as you started getting a bit I older, think so. you sort of wanted to? Do, I've it, always been pretty adventurous anyway from a young yeah. age. You know, I was always sort of disappearing into the bush and stuff like that. And um, I grew up with dogs. That, you know, I had always had dogs as a kid. I think they were probably my best mates, really, hanging out, you know, going on these adventures together. And, uh, yeah, no, so I've, I've definitely kind of always been that way inclined. Yeah. Know. It's um, – we're kind of in a time now where it just feels like age doesn't really – stop people from doing as much stuff anymore like even dad's such a good example of when we went up to cape york like he's 58 needs two knee replacements but he rode every kilometer of that trip yeah and there's some pretty deep sand there like you know we ride a bit of sand in cambodia and stuff and i'm surprised how sandy it is in places but yeah i was quite surprised it was even deeper heading up to cape york on the, the that jardine national park well i, I think most of the sand would seem actually probably the deepest was going to the very tip oh in that, we that little yeah that was probably the most fun i had the whole yeah, time mate. that was good that was probably a 7k little four wheel drive trail mm. i wonder if that was the tele track still i don't know well I we did the, we, we did do the tele track yeah. and frenchies yeah so there's a bit of sand but we, you know pete's bike being a bit heavier 
and, and underpowered, blown out knee and, and stuff yeah. like that. So you know it was hard for him to get the bike on top of the sand, yeah, and stuff. But he did it. I know. I couldn't. I I thought, and obviously, like he's done it before. So it's like he's done that ride a bunch mm. of times. So it's not like it was this thing he needed to check off his list. Like he could have easily just sat in the car and drunk beers the whole time. But I uh, thought he'd do a couple days and yeah. then be like, you know what, fuck this. But he rode every single K. Like it was so sick to see. I think he like fired everyone up too, you know, because like he was on the, a 250. It was the heaviest bike. His yeah. knees are fucked. And like he was like the I don't know it seemed like everyone was so pumped. And on he it. had to tow a nearly a brand new KTM. I know that made his whole life. Didn't <laughs> it, it did. He goes, "Have you still got that video?" I said, oh, "I do." <laughs> <laughs> One of the boys um, got a, a three fifty Kato, and uh, the kill switch failed on it, so like it, he couldn't take the kill switch off, and we just couldn't get the thing going. So Dad had to tow him from the tip back to Punsan Bay, which was probably worked out to be about. It was probably a pretty decent ride, really, because it we was. had to go all the way around the ride. It would have yep. been over 20Ks. And um, yep. just made Dad's whole trip, eh? He just yeah. thought it was the sickest thing ever that he was towing. He was on his rally board, and then Jason's riding past with, like, this, getting a selfie of Dad towing this thing, and Chook was just fucking over it. And Chook said it was super sketchy, too, because he Dad said to him, like, if it gets weird and gets sketchy, like, we stole a bit of rope from a couple that was there, and... Um, yeah. he goes if it gets sketchy just hit the horn twice and I'll I'll pull over but he couldn't turn anything on <laughs> so, so he, he couldn't, couldn't he couldn't use the horn he was on the horn the whole way and there was actually no beeping <laughs> and we were riding beside him and he's like, he's, we're like what do you want to do bro but it started getting late so I was like fuck this I'll be out have yeah. you ever been towed before no nah, it's way? pretty hard eh? it's the worst thing ever yeah it's bad I've been towed through the jungle before <laughs> I bet you have. Unlike really sketchy train, and it's just like riding a wild bull. <laughs> yeah, hundred yeah, percent. Yeah. Oh um, man. Yeah. No, it's sketchy as. What um? What did you expect going into that Cape trip? Like, did you did it line up with like what you sort of thought? I didn't think there'd be as much um sort of highway. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because there was a lot. And by highway, we mean dirt highway. Yeah, so, so I was just wanted to repeat about that last night. So we, we actually did just over 3,000 kilometres. Up and back. Yeah. Yeah, no joke, eh? Because there was a couple of days there we were doing like... Four, 500. 500, yeah. yeah. I'm just going, holy shit, man. And, um, of course, my 525 started giving me a, a few problems. <laughs> well, it was I thought the it was fucking a, best. I thought it was a bloody battery... <laughs> And then it was a solenoid or something. So sometimes, it, you know, the, the buttons start to work and, oh man, I'm just not used to kicking over 525s these yeah, days. Yeah, so that, we, we stopped at one point on the um, on the crab track coming through the Daintree and we're on this river and, like, no, we'd, none of us helped him and he just was fucking losing his shit <laughs> <laughs> trying to start this 525, eh? Oh, it was fucking the best thing ever. Then, we, yeah. We, then, had, uh, we had that one day where like i was sort of saying with sam like i'm not a super risky rider like i don't i'm not the guy like toby just is full retard and he'll Crazy. just hold it on yeah. flat and he just yeah. doesn't care like he'll just hit these ho- doesn't scare him yeah. but i'm like not that dude i'm like you know what something jumps out at me if i hit a rock wrong 
I'm just not built to take an impact at 130 <laughs> kilometers an hour. And uh, so maybe big problem, big problem, <laughs> even with helmet on. <laughs> so we uh, that first day, uh, the second day where we went from Laura to Cullen, we did that. The, oh yeah, we did that trail where me and you rode back and like sitting on about 80 k's. 90k's and my bike was geared wrong the whole time so that was a that was probably the only thing I'd change really I'm wondering if you're the only guy that's done the full Cairns to Cape and back on a motocross bike <laughs> yeah unregistered 450 <laughs> with 1452 gearing that uh, you can ride supercross on yeah but so I'm like the bike fifth gear pretty like comfortably to where it's not revving too hard and vibrating my fucking eyeballs out of my head <laughs> was about 90 k's an hour which was pissing everybody off because all the other boys could sit on like 110 120 yeah. at that same sort of rpm yeah so like the whole trip i'm just going do, 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 in fifth gear just trying to fucking keep up with everybody mm. on on the highway sections but on the you know the tight sort of gravelly yeah. roads the tight windy stuff I was like 80 Ks, fourth, fifth year, like, you know, sort of changing gears in between there. And I felt pretty risky. Yeah. And I was like, fuck, man, like, it's, it's, this is like fast. And then the day that me and you did it going backwards from Cohen to Laura, we were probably sitting on 130 for like, what, 40 minutes at a time? Yeah. The average speed was about 130 clicks. (laughs) And I was like, I went from not really even wanting to be in fifth gear to every time I was in fifth gear changing up and up, like fifth gear felt like fourth gear yeah and it was just such a an eye-opening experience to like feel your human perspective on speed change because when we were together your bike's not really making that much noise at that speed no it's just idling and and but i'm there thinking like yeah. oh that's just gonna be bored so i was trying to pin it and then and then we stopped at the creek and, and jace is like yeah, we're going pretty fucking fast, eh? <laughs> if you want to back it down, because it's just a yeah. it's a one lane road, and you just you're just sort of together. And the thing is, like the dust. If if I let him go ahead of me, then it's crazy dust for yeah, a while. Yeah, you got to sit right on the wheel, you, or you get hose rocks. And yeah, and then if you go back, like if you're just out of the dust, but you're behind, then mm. you're in the rocks. Mm. So we you just have to play this game the whole time. And it was funny, like one of the boys that come on the trip, how's this? first ride ever just a cape yeah yeah I couldn't believe it yeah so he has never he uh he's a really good like world class mountain bike rider yeah well that obviously made a big difference he's beat Richie Rude before Mm -hmm. in a enduro race like he was about to do the whole world series and um so anyway his experience on a motocross bike or on a motorbike is an ag bike he works for world trail so he's one of the machine operators so he would just ride through the forestry to get to his excavator every morning and then ride out so that's his like experience he bought the bike I think he rode one time ever but it was just like a little trail ride through Mm. the hills at Cairns gets on the bike does the entire trip and there was um, the first day I I sort of gave him a bit of advice about um, just body positioning on like the flat turns because he was sort of leaning with the bike on Mm. that flat gravel shit mm. and moving like 80 you know 80 90 k's so he was like oh i just feel real unsteady eh? and i was like well, <laughs> fuck it up, bro like you know, this was really <laughs> nearly <laughs> nearly dead yeah he just felt he's like oh, i just feel like my front wheel's gonna go every time i turn i was like well it is about to go and um so then i sort of told him the correct 
way to position your body on that and then he really like he sort of figured it out and there was one day before frenchies so when we stopped for lunch after we got lost near the quarry was that looking for the quarry remember yeah and then we drowned a couple of bikes that no 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 this this was before that oh okay so remember we um we were looking for the quarry for ages couldn't find it and then we just wrote drove on the road until we met the cars we made some food on the side of the road yep and then we drove to frenchies and then that was the there was a couple of like those sort of water crossings and stuff like the causeways yeah so that bit of road was probably about 30 25 k's and me and muff were fucking sending it and like i was i was so impressed by him because he was keeping up and i was just pushing a little bit more a little bit more and like i'm talking we're going around these turns in fifth gear just sliding the whole Mm. way around the turn like just lighten it up and muff's right there and i wasn't holding it on through the straight sort of thing and he's just kept there kept there kept there and i'm like this is fucking unbelievable for a dude that's never yeah. rode a motorcycle yeah before. i couldn't believe it and yeah, then it was insane we we stopped that night then we did frenchies he actually looped it out in frenchies it was like a real tough four drive trail but he's looped it out and that was his first sort of you know taste of having a crash but we stopped that night and i'm like what does it feel like like does it feel fast to you or like are you comfortable with how fast we're going and he's like oh I'm not going to lie, eh? Like, I was just sort of wondering if this was normal. <laughs> he just didn't. He just, I was like, nah, man. Like, that's going pretty fucking fast, yeah. eh? Yeah. And he just hung. And then, like, there was one of the days when we went... You remember when we went to the old Jardine crossing? The one that we couldn't get across. Like, we... Oh, yeah, yeah. We stopped and they dug out the other side with the escalator. That's right, yeah. That was probably some of the deepest. 100% you went across there, you'd be eaten alive yeah you're dead yeah. you're gonskis yeah um but yeah so we got to there and then from riding there to the ferry muff just took off and he was riding in like legitimate deep sand and it's like the roads are in sand yeah the, that's the right fall, that was really that was that was that pretty, was deep yeah there. and the, so the yeah. four drives they sit down in the sand and you get these two big ruts mm-hmm. and you really can't get in or out of them once you're there and there's like trees that are growing right up to the side of it so you can't even really lean into the turns that much because you're going to just lean into trees it's very like really technical riding yeah yeah, i banged my bars a couple of times on trees yeah i still got a little bit of a love bite there from the knuckle getting through the bus bus bark buster but yeah muff just killed it he just took off and i was like dude like it's so impressive for a Mm. guy to to do that oh absolutely even you know he's like how much oil do i put in my air filter i'm like bro you're 1500 kilometers into one of the coolest rides that you can ever do and he's never done an air filter it's yeah. fucking amazing yeah yeah no uh, that was good on the pegs standing up yeah yeah uh, i don't think he liked standing up well he broke his wrist real bad that sort of ended his mountain bike racing career because oh, yeah, that's, that's what right. that's what he was saying yeah. like he just kept his levers kind of flat like how moto dude sort of set bikes up mm-hmm. and um he was saying that because i was saying like all right stand up and just i just basically in those those sort of sandy sections i just come in hot lock it up like get the rear end to where i'm going straight again dump the clutch and go and he i was saying do that a little bit instead of trying to like turn your way through it just gets too tiring and um anyway he just he was like i just can't do it eh? and then he was saying that because he can't move his wrist yeah. he couldn't actually get to the clutch yeah i remember so, saying that yeah, but yeah. um but yeah 
insane to do that ride like that, eh? And and he was he had no idea what to expect, eh? Yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously, clearly that the, the whole mountain bike being a one of the top world top riders um, translates. Yeah, I mean, but but in a big way. Yeah, yeah, to go and do that ride. He didn't look out of place the, at all. Did no, he? no, I, I would never have picked it at all. <laughs> pretty yeah. crazy. Yeah, we um the the Pasco River crossing was pretty funny with the drown bike. Yeah. <laughs> so so what was said? So Pete's gone. All right, so we're going to get up to this river. When we get there, no one take a bike through. <laughs> wait. <laughs> Just wait. And he said about oh, here we go, yeah. quite clearly about three times. So we roll up there and there's bikes in the river already. And <laughs> big, big problem. <laughs> Fuel-injected bikes. Yep, drown. Like uh, no, nah. and uh, it's no, like it's a super deep, like you can see it's over like the bonnet of the of those cars but um yeah so we get we get there and we it was so deep that we ended up having to put sticks through the wheels and like chair ride the like everyone mm. was completely soaked it was like yeah waist, oh yeah no it was deep. deep yeah because there was a couple of like holes so you'd be carrying a bike and next thing you kind of fall in a hole and nearly everyone would go over with you and yeah. is this croc area here nah that's no, probably a little bit too it's fresh water there mm. um but it's probably a little bit too too high up um and too inland for the crocs there i think that the boys thought there might have been a little bit more elevation there than it was but i think it was only like 90 feet above sea level so it's definitely not out of um out of reach out of reach like if one mm. wanted to be there it could be there yeah you should google the jardine old jardine river crossing Th- this this was crazy like and i remember being a kid and dad riding bikes across that river like mul- yeah he was the only one out of the group there was a few of them that wanted to ride yeah. it but dad ended up having to ride uh, look at the fucking crocs there too so that's the new one with the ferry but yeah, those top ones, that's the old river crossing. Yeah. And they've ended up actually digging that out now on the other side of the river so that people can't cross there. Yeah, so you have to use the ferry. Because the ferry was expensive, right? It was like 40 bucks or something. No, it wasn't for the the vehicles. It was like 130 or something. Really? I think it was it's 40 only, bucks it's only like bikes, right? 50 metres across or something. Oh, no way. But they were having to... Um, they were having to pull so many people out of the river and the crocodiles there are just so thick. Like, it's right before Bamaga. So it's one mm. of the, you know, the last sort of towns before you hit the tip. But um, they actually had to, like, dig it out with the excavator um, mm. so that people would stop trying to do the crossing. And we went there to see if, like, it was still possible, but Dad was just like, fucking shut it down, boys. <laughs> There's no chance. But it was... It's pretty... Um, it's pretty shallow until you get to that other side and then it sort of drops it dro- off drops right off mm. and then that's what they ended up digging out but um coming into that that old telly road into that old crossing was just so deep with yeah day. like that was hard riding yeah. to get in and out of there i didn't know where the hell we were going because at one point i took off and i was in front of everyone and I'm riding and riding it's gone where the fuck's this going i thought it was meant to be going to a river and it just felt like I was just going for endless. I ended up stopping. Yeah. And waiting. I could hear the bikes coming and we're going the right way. But yeah, how's a guy 
riding that 800GS. Oh, dude. The look on his face, it was near, what's it called? Shotgun or whatever with a gunshot. Gunshot. Type, type that in, dude. You should see this. Like, it's this famous four wheel drive, like, drop off sort of and, deal. And there was two guys on KDM 690s, and they, they, were, they, they were pretty loaded up, so they were riding unsupported. And they looked like they were, they were going fine, but man, I, I brief, would not have wanted to ride. I that briefly bike spoke there. to the guy on the GS, and he just goes, "Oh, I'm not really a, a bit of a novice rider." Oh, and it was really? <laughs> Look and, at that shit, dude. And he had he had so much gear on his bike, and you know they're insanely heavy. Those 800s. I mean, as it is before you load it out, man. I mean, one of those things it'd fall on you, just crush your legs, right? Yeah. And anyway, I'm glad I wasn't riding that thing. We um that that was we saw them on the other side of Elliot Falls, eh? And then one of them drowned their bikes in that little river crossing. Yeah, it, it's crazy to me, like the amount of people that would fucking drown their bikes trying to get across these rivers. And it's like you just you you have to walk through, like you can't just go sight unseen because yep. the water's so clear, everything looks shallow, mm. and then you get to some of these rivers that um. I wouldn't know what to type in here, but they're so, um, the soil is so dense with minerals that it goes like this crazy green. So you can't tell at all how deep it is. Mm. And then there's like the crocodiles everywhere. So it's like, it becomes a bit of a thing to try and get across these rivers. But we spent, what, maybe an hour and a half on the other side of the Pasco trying to get the bikes sorted out and going again. Yeah. Easily, eh? Yeah, it did take a while, didn't it? I wonder what would have happened if dad wasn't there. Uh, they'd still be there. <laughs> Maybe skeletons, ant food. <laughs> Big problem. <laughs> Big problem. Bit like a bit like the the that that Pajero <laughs> running, running road tires, and it was this dude, old and, German dude, and these two chicks. Yeah, and and they were just like stuck. They had a camper trailer on the back, and it was just it, like he totally did everything stuck, wrong. Eh? Everything wrong, <laughs> and he had his winch cable out, and we started. Digging, digging in his, a hole. Digging a hole to put his spare wheel in to winch him out. But then the remote control for his winch was under the back and he had all this stuff and the, and the doors of his car had locked so he couldn't open the doors. He tried to climb in over the back seat. There was like push bikes and all that. So where the winch control was was right under some sort of panel. So we just left them there actually. <laughs> no, well, we, went, we went and told some ranger and um, they were gone when we went back through there. So I presume they were Like right. a, a week later. Yeah, yeah. But he goes, uh, it was so funny because he's, so he's tried to take this caravan and it's not big, like it's not hard to, it, I don't know how you get stuck in that particular thing, but perfect storm of like just fucking no idea. Yeah. But basically, so he gets in, road tires, had about 40 PSI in the tires and then he's like the trailers kind of up like that the camper van's up like that so then he comes up with the bright idea to disconnect the caravan so he disconnects the fucking caravan in even, the middle of the river in the middle of the river by he, hand. he's got this chick one of the chicks that is with him we're like have, how much air have you got in your tires and he's like oh maybe 40 psi <laughs> <laughs> and we're like on the sand and then, and then we're like you're probably gonna have to let them down there big dog so he's got this this german lady puts this fucking dive mask on <laughs> and she's, try and find the valve she's got a snorkel to try and find the valve so that she can let the fucking tires down and we we're just like bro you've done everything wrong and like yeah. all these boys were over there like trying to help him out and me glenn maddie um 
dad and muff we just dug it's like this huge big riverbed and it floods in the in the wet but we just carved out like a bit of a beach chair sort of thing and we just sat there as a peanut gallery and we were just like fuck this we're out this has been a long day as it is it seemed like every single day there was something that happened whether it was getting lost because really none of us had that much of a clue where to go like and it's been so long since dad's well, been up there no one had a map none of us we did the whole thing oh, without wow. a map either yeah and we'd we'd just have Fordsy was in the car and so we had what we have three support vehicles yeah, yeah. We, yeah so we had three support vehicles yep. and then those boys would um and because i was on a fucking supercross bike I had to carry a liter of fuel with me at all times. <laughs> well, lucky I had my fuel tanker. Yeah, so he's he's got an oil rig, an offshore oil rig for a bike. <laughs> Big, yeah, got the long range tank on it, which was handy. Yeah, it come in massively handy. So yeah. I had a Camelback with a a one liter fuel bottle on the back of it. So I carabined that to my to yeah. my um, back. Luckily, I didn't go over the bars and fucking break my spine on and the e- thing. And explode. Oh. So that's the whole... <laughs> that's what I was thinking the whole time. I'm like, fuck this thing on my back. Like, that's a spinal injury waiting to happen. Well, what about... What was the guy's name on the first day? Oh, and Pete Tony. and I had... Yeah, yeah, Tony. We had to take him out. Yeah, so one wow. of the boys, we were on like a graded... They, they'd freshly graded this bit of road and then it went into a dip and then mm. they just like... It's like they just got the grader and then gone okay fuck five o'clock reversed it out so there was a ledge on this road and he was wearing like a really heavy backpack eh? yeah i mean when i pulled up i could see he was in a lot of pain straight Big away time. yeah and, and he's a tough old dude yeah and he goes i oh, just i'll just ride out moan i'm going no nah, man we'll 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 ride out with you and so i took his pack and it was full of tools it must have been about like 15 kilo on his back and obviously between hitting that that big dip and then the compression of yeah. the and, and he did he actually broke a um, broke his vertebrae broke a vertebrae in his lower back so he's yeah. out of action for like three yeah. months he's just got to sit still so mm. where did he ride back to like what happens there uh we weren't that far out of cairns i think we're a few hours out and we got to a little town and i think you got to like palmer river roadhouse or something yeah. like that yeah i i, I wanted to call in an ambulance or something actually and he was a pretty tough guy and he goes, oh, i'll be all right yeah he laid on Later. the he laid we went and had a beer with him when we mm. got back to cairns he laid on the ground at the palm oh you realize you caught like, up with him yeah, yeah 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 we went and saw him so he laid on the ground for like three hours waiting for his son to come and grab him yeah that's how we sort of left him <laughs> <laughs> the eagles were like circling above and, yeah. well, yeah. we go well man we need to go actually but uh <laughs> it's been you'll good. be all right <laughs> um but then uh so then dad had my fuel bladder so we were we did this old coach road which goes through to maytown so i'm on my bike and i'm like um i probably should grab that fuel eh and i look around i'm like fuck dad's got the fuel so then we had nothing so luckily muffin had a a water bottle he had a camelback full of water and then a water bottle in his bag and then so we had to stop we had to undo the um all the bikes of fuel injected so there's no fuel taps so there's three three dudes on maddie's bike tipping into this little one liter no it wouldn't have even been a liter water bottle and then i had to go over fill that up another liter and then we took off and then that was to get into laura and then five k's from laura i took off in front of maddie and muff five k's from laura maddie runs out of fuel (laughs) so and i'm already at the pub drinking beers (laughs) and then i'm like where the fuck are these guys like they should be here by now and um 
so then I rode back to the the um, rodeo grounds, which is like kind of across the street. Yeah. And I saw a dude, so I was like, "Oh, I'm not going to ride down the trail." I was like, "Have you seen some bikes come past?" After thirty of us come past on bikes, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, everyone's at the pub. All right, sweet. Get back there. They're not there. So it turns out that yeah, Maddie runs out of fuel. Then they had to tip tip Muff's bike up and steal fuel from Muff's bike. But that was the story of the trip for me was just like managing my uh my fuel stops. fuel yeah well that's it because i mean that bike thing got what six and a half liters seven yeah. liter tank or yeah, something couldn't even couldn't even be more than seven liters yeah. and then that, that <laughs> the one day the second last day going from cohen back to lions den where it was fuck i was over that day like that was a day where i was pretty close oh, yeah, to yeah. putting it on the trailer yeah that that was long that was bad riding yeah that was really long because we're on these um just dirt sort of highways mm. and you're just holding your bike as fast as it'll go like there's just no like there's there's nothing to slow down for well i mean you still you gotta watch out for those dips over now and then that's true they, they'd seriously catch you out if you weren't on the ball you know you'd be riding along because it's all flat and then all of a sudden it the road dips but you can't see how deep it is until you're on it yeah and yeah you could bin it really easy going through one of those did you have any moments like sketchy sort of moments uh, only when the road train come across and then Maddie goes, oh. hey guys, you nearly hit that um, that thing on the side of the road, you know, like the, the you know the oh, markers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And going, yeah, that was pretty close. Because, <laughs> you know, the road trains come past, it's just totally dust out. And then trying to overtake our own support vehicles on the way back. Oh, yeah. Because they're like hurling along with the trailers on. And, um, you know, you... You know, you're sort of going, well, can I go? And, you know, you don't want to be going past, you know. Throwing rocks at the cars and shit. Oh, yeah. So you've got big yonnies coming at you left, right and centre. And, uh, yeah. So I think that was probably the only rule. My sketchiest moment was like 20 minutes into the trip. Like when we first got <laughs> off the range, we rode up the range yeah. and then we got onto that gravel. And then we were going along the gravel and there was just a little causeway and it was dusty. But, and I was sort of, but I was close to everyone. So I sort of just figured. If I was close to everyone, there's going to be nothing really on the road to catch me out. Yeah. Because they're going right there. So I couldn't see, but I had faith that I was just going to follow what you guys are doing. I like the faith bit. Blind faith. Faith. <laughs> and then I'm, so I'm standing up on the front. I, there's no steg pegs on that thing. So you've really yeah. got to like put your weight forward to be comfortable standing yeah. up. And I just hit this fucking hole, dude, on the other side of a causeway and my fucking hand come off both feet come off and I've just I reckon if it wasn't for that steering dam I probably would have cartwheeled yeah right and I've just fucking wee, got it back on and just gone well I'm 20 minutes into this I'm fucking this I'm gonna die on the way like if, <laughs> if I'm not getting to the cape if this keeps happening man I'm fucking done for <laughs> but that was sort of really it there are a couple of times oh no I had that one where remember when we first got onto the telly track and me and Maddie took off pretty quickly and we were sort of going and that was probably the first time on the trip I'd actually like really hooked in and had a crack and then it was just this sweet dirt four-wheel drive track it was pretty much a motocross track really and like Maddie had gone before me so he'd pushed up these pretty sick berms out of the sand so I was just following all those lines and just every turn just laying it in and then I, I come into one probably from about fourth gear and then I was standing up and sort of like counter steering the bike 
to sort of set it up for the next turn and i'm in there and then it hit a root and it just flicked my back end up in the air and i'm just like oh fuck and i'm just watching the trail go past me and then into the trees and then i ended up landing in the trees and i just fucking pinballed man from tree to tree but nothing hit far enough along my handlebars that it completely turned my bars it was just these little yeah, sort right, of little yeah, yeah. knocks and i was just doing the fucking uh, like crunching my eyes up and then just got through and i just did i just hit both brakes didn't touch a clutch let the bike stall and just basically try to stop it as fast as i could and did you have tunes playing at the same time while this is going on because no, most of these guys had um onboard music going on yeah well Matt, maddie and dad had theirs going i didn't i forgot to bring headphones up there yeah i killed mine so you normally ride with headphones I do. Eh? Yeah. yeah i didn't have i didn't have anything yeah so i um actually on an overseas trip marking out a new ride a while ago was when i killed my last ipod and um i actually we were on this wooden boat well, I marked out this ride and we were going down the bottom of uh, um, Vietnam across into Cambodia. And I'd seen on the map, you could get on a ferry and you cut across essentially where the bottom of the Mekong comes out to the ocean. And it would cut out about four hours of ride time going, oh, that's perfect. <laughs> so we get down to this docklands and go, yeah, where's the ferry? And so the ferry was actually a big old wooden fishing boat that's no longer a fishing boat and just carries people so on a skinny plank we took each bike out there and um so we go what i what looks like you know an hour and you're across like what's kind of a bit of a river no we're actually in the shipping channel and Whoa. um going holy fuck there's an oar rig and we had to go because it was so shallow we had to go right 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 out anyway oh. and we got all the bikes tied on the front and this is just me and a couple of mates and crew. And um, and next thing we hear, oh, the, 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 the ropes are broken on the motorbikes and one's ready to fall in. So we shoot up the front of the boat and it's starting to get pretty rough. And sure enough, one of the bikes is nearly in the drink. Me and TT become like human hockey straps <laughs> holding these bikes. And I'm looking and the... And this swell was getting bigger and bigger, and this boat's just launching on an angle across this swell. Man, I thought I was hundred percent going to die. <laughs> it was so, it, and this went on for hours, right? So this, what I thought was going to be like an hour, or whatever. It, you know, we're on this boat for like four hours. So to cut four hours off the ride, you sat on a death trap boat for four hours. <laughs> oh, absolutely, man. That was super sketchy. Oh, and so what? What happened was there was so much waves and water coming over the bow of the boat killed my ipod <laughs> <laughs> so, that's how the ipod died yeah i was yeah. I, I was like fuck how did we start this story yeah. <laughs> I was like, this is heavy sure, but that's a great. Um, the 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 waves were so big coming over the bows of the boat my boots my adventure boots that i had on they were full of water really yeah that, that is no yeah joke. a couple of points there i was actually ready to bail off the boat really oh yeah it was out of control yeah <laughs> i reckon out of all the sketchy things i've done in my life that's probably number two <laughs> what's number one <laughs> i don't know but can't remember what number one was but there's got to be some um, super sketchy situations that you've been in yeah been a few yeah i want to hear number one what stands out um because like looking for those you map you and mm -hmm. tt do most of the mapping for the 
um, motorcycle tours that you do through Vietnam. Yep. So, like, what's the process of that? Like, you basically just look at a map and try and figure out cool shit, right? Uh, yeah, so between sort of Vietnam, Cambodia and, and Laos. And, yeah, pr- and pretty much. We'll, so we'll have a, a general point of where we want to go. But, of course, through that point, we'll want to try and find back roads and, yeah. and all that sort of thing. So, yeah, sometimes you might come to dead ends, landslides, roads are collapsed. Um, sometimes we don't always pick the best weather when we're going to go. It's just that window of opportunity. You go, all right, now we should go and map this ride. So, yeah, there's been some sketchy things along the way. But, yeah, nothing too bad. I think actually maybe that boat trip should be number one. <laughs> what about with, like, diving and stuff like that that you've done? Um, no, nothing nothing really because you're playing it super safe with that yeah right? yeah probably probably some of the boat trips themselves of getting out to the dive location. yeah where you know you got all your gear on and it's just props out the water all the way yeah you see um like deadliest catch and stuff like that you're just like how the fuck can they actually be in those conditions eh yeah it's pretty crazy isn't it we we had one my best mate in Cairns he's obsessed with fishing yeah. and so he he now has like a 25 foot fishing boat or 30 foot fishing boat and it's fucking awesome but he when we were kids like that was his thing he was going to buy like a tinny so he's sort of done like the upgrades through his life right. you know yeah. like starting from just a tiny tinny and we used to do the most fucking dumb shit on that boat there's been two times where I've gone out with him fishing where I was like cool dad that's it i'm not coming back from this now like we went out off the daintree one time with him yeah and we went out for fucking that's when we were off the like at the shelf like hours and hours and you're taking jerry cans of fuel with you because it's only like a little outboard 50 horsepower or 45 (laughs) horsepower i think and we were out there and it's like beautiful calm day perfect all good cleaned up with fish and then the this storm front come in and tyson was just classic it's gonna be fine i was like we should fucking go like let's at least get in a little bit to where at least we can get rescued if we capsize yeah because we're so far out now that we'll be dead by the time anyone fucking figures this Mm. out so let's go at least closer like i'm down to stay out and fish but let's at least be smart no no no, i reckon let's just give it 10 minutes like we'll just see where it goes sure sure enough this fucking front rolls in and it's just this huge way and we're in this tiny tinny just me and him and he is pinning it back like as fast as this thing will go like he's just hit the panic buttons and just holding this fucking tinny wide open and i've got a rope at the front of the boat and i'm standing with like my feet all the way Wedge, against the yeah. thing and just come back and we ended up getting back or i think we like almost run out of fuel we did run out of fuel at one point and then we had to stop and try and fill this thing up while it's these huge yeah, fucking yeah, swells right. so then yeah. that was the other thing i was like when it's not going to get fuel in this boat like how do we put fuel in it now so yeah anyway it was one of those deals but like there's probably no more vulnerable feeling than being in the ocean in that like when you're in that kind of situation because there's nothing there's no safety net no no especially when you're on an old fishing boat and there ain't no safety gear no big problem (laughs) the um the the guides uh on the tour that we had they there was like a couple of classic lines that have just become etched in our brains now one of them every time you stop uh, you'd get like bow or TT. They'd go, 
Come on, helmets on, nothing to see. <laughs> <laughs> and then the other one would do big problem. And then you're like, we're like, what happened to the bike? Oh, big problem. <laughs> Someone's put someone blow their bike up. Uh, and it just they go, what happened to the big problem? Ah, oh, problem fixed. <laughs> no more problem. <laughs> no more problem. <laughs> oh, fucking classic. Um, the other thing I wanted to talk about uh, was the, the Global Village Housing Project, which I'm keen to get something going through the podcast i want to build a gypsy tales house in cambodia are you going to move into it i don't want to live there i just want to build it build yourself a holiday house on a rubbish (laughs) dump in third world country (laughs) so how does it how does that work so you were involved in charity stuff before and then some weird shit went down in the charity Mm. and then you decided to not raise money for someone else's charity and that you were going to do your own right uh, yeah. So, I mean, as you know, I, you know, I started doing a fair bit of riding in Cambodia and we do t- dirt bike tours over there and stuff. Um, and I, um, sort of a long story, but I, I, I got involved. Got time, mate. Yeah. I got involved with a, a, a charity over there. Um, worked as a self-funded volunteer, um, doing sort of project management, working on some of their, working with families living on rubbish dumps, essentially. Um, and, and different bits and pieces and sort of over a course of four years I kind of call it my apprenticeship um, I've seen the good, the bad and the, the very dark of the charity world um, I sort of left that quite jaded actually um, but during that time I'd actually designed these houses for these families that I was working with in on rubbish dumps because the crazy thing is that when you live on a rubbish dump, you still actually pay rent to someone. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. How that works. Yeah. And so who's the dude collecting the rent? Don't know. Be like local mafia or something. It'll be someone, you know, like in sketchy. control. Yeah. Be, or someone, you know, be connected to the dump. Uh, I think sometimes even the families actually pay money, like royalties, to the people who run the rubbish dumps as well. So everyone's getting something. Mm. Um, and of course, a lot of the families that I was working with living on rubbish dumps, their houses are made of rubbish. Um, and, you know, the, the only way to fix a house made from rubbish is literally throw another piece of rubbish on it, mm. like a tarpaulin or something like that. You know. Um, can you find that? Can you, like, Google the Cambodia, just like rubbish dump house or something like just to get a visual of, like, how they're living? Yeah. It was, it's, you know. Actually, the first time I ever went to the dump, um, the dump that I went to originally was the, a dump out at Stung Min Che on the Jesus. outskirts of P- Phnom Penh. Um, and, um, yeah, I actually had a few stiff drinks after that, to say the least, because um, it was... Um, Super confronting. Really confronting. Uh, seeing these, you know, families and little kids, you know, you know just like that. Um, and the smell and the burning rubbish and, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, it was pretty alarming. Um, so I started working with a bit of an idea of designing uh, like a like a cheap house. Um, I sort of looked at timber because I, actually one of the first things I, I built in Cambodia was a playground of all things. Um, the organisation I was working with, they had a community centre nearby the rubbish dump. And it was just all these kids running around. And I said, oh, I wouldn't mind coming back actually building a playground for these kids and stuff, you know, and climbing walls and all that, So, which I did. 
Um, so I looked at building the houses out of timber. <clears throat> the timber in Cambodia is quite expensive. And so anyway, I um, and it's all carved out of the jungle and all that. Uh, as a kid growing up, I had a fair bit of work, um, background with working with metal fabrication. Uh, so I started looking into steel and all that. It was quite affordable. So designed a house, built some test houses, um, and become quite successful. So the houses are really small. Um, with a family living on a rubbish stamp, their average size house is usually about two meters by two meters, three meters by three meters. So of course you don't want to, if you're going to be gifting a, a, or building a home for a family, you don't want to be because they're, they're all built back to back. So you don't want to be knocking over the neighbor's house, yeah, giving someone a house. Um, so you know where our houses are at the moment. You know the average size house is three point six by three point six. Which, which you know, is this studio is bigger than that yeah so well they're on stilts and all that so you know they're kind of like a, a flash cap, cubby house in, in western standards but they actually work so essentially you know we're working with families it's the first time uh, they've ever had a, a front door um, or lights so our houses are built on stilts so they're vermin and flood proof they use under the house and it has a concrete pad for cooking and cleaning and general living and then the house itself is basically used for for sleeping uh has solar lighting fully insulated guttering so they can collect rainwater um we've sort of moved away over the years from working with families from rubbish dumps and now we we kind of specialize in working with families throughout cambodia in the most remote parts um which is pretty much everywhere when i got up to six houses i was kind of woohoo six houses you know i was pretty stoked with that um i i think we're up to 318 now so crazy eh? so yeah it's come up come a long way my big thing is i've got a bit of a thorn in my side about the the whole charity world though in yeah. general and i think a lot of people do i thought I've you know, a bit of a weird experience with some charity yeah, stuff. yeah i remember you were saying to me the other week but um <clears throat> you know we all hear these stories about you know money just doesn't get there people getting paid crazy wages and all that i mean i don't get it. i mean if you're going to do something charitable well it should be based on that i mean why does someone need to be paid vast amounts of money to help poor people I yeah don't, don't get that at all um so our sort of bragging rights is showing the charity world that yeah we run on an oily rag and uh, we've made a significant difference for very little money one of our houses costs um um We've just put it up. Actually, it's um, they're up to two thousand three hundred and fifty dollars built and delivered. US, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that's you know we've got a little factory on the edge of uh, Phnom Penh. Um, so we pre-build the house's flat pack. Uh, then um, the only people that get paid are the locals themselves. Yeah. Uh, then we, we we ship the house out, um, and then you know put it put a house up in basically four and a half hours, and then there's the concrete footings and things like that the family also receive a, a welcome gift package which would be like mosquito net bedding new towels detergents rice and things like that yeah. it's always a bit different depending on who the family are sometimes it can be footwear as well sometimes the kids have never had shoes um and we work with the families to you know try and help and ensure to get the kids into school and with that too actually we've done a couple of schools as well um 
uh, work with, um, do a bit of stuff with uh, Operation Smile because we work in all these remote areas. So sometimes we will find kids or, or people who are in need of pretty major medical work. Yeah. Um, so we, we partner with these other organisations. So we're sort of like their eyes and ears that helps them out. Um, yeah, so yeah, it's it's come a long way. It's still very much grassroots. Yeah. Um, firmly want to keep it that way. Yeah. Yeah. Because what's with like the charity thing? Like, say people in your position where you've got like some runs on the board, obviously you've built like 300 houses and mm. would it be easy for you then, and I'm talking on like the darker side of charity, like yeah. is there a, is it now an easy thing where someone in your position could like take it and run with it and, and turn it into a bit of a cash cow that really doesn't feed into the actual charity side of it? Like, is that sort of what happens? Oh, look, I, I, I think you can for sure. Um, actually, I, I, funny enough, I had a Canadian lady um, I had breakfast with um, oh, probably about three or four years ago. And uh, she said to me, um, what would I do if I, if I gave you a million dollars? Um, and she was a, quite a, a genuine donor and stuff, and they'd actually sponsored a couple of houses and things like that, and sort of, you know, took me a bit by surprise and 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 stuff, and 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 basically, long and short of it, I said to her at the end of the breakfast, I said, in all honesty, it's a it's a it's a nice offer, um, but it's not who we are. Um, it would change who we are. We would need to then hire additional people. We'd need to grow a lot bigger and all that. And honestly, I wouldn't know what to do with the money. Mm. Um, and we just does, don't work like that and um, yeah so yeah, she was a bit taken back but um, yeah kind of got understood the angle where we were coming from of mm. wanting to stay uh, grassroots and yeah I certainly don't want to make money out of poverty mm. um, essentially it's the motorbike tours that covers the, the daily run-ins um, of, of the operation um, if we're while we're building houses, um, we make enough profit. So we could. It depends on where the house is uh, going to, the location, the likes. But we might make um, two to three hundred dollars profit per house. Uh, then that money will offset and pay the factory rent, power, mm. staff wages, and that. If we're not building uh, houses and there's that lull, I'll, I'll cover the costs. Um, I still cover the cost of a, a couple of wages for the staff direct ourselves through the motorbike tours. Yeah, yeah. But these days it's become its own thing. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, so it is easy for people to take advantage of those type of Oh, look, I think it is. I mean, I've, I've seen it a lot. Um, I, for a little while there, I was hoping someone that was investigating some um, pretty corrupt um, charities in in different locations and stuff and um yeah once you start looking at some of these uh organizations that look very shiny and very glossy and yeah. and stuff they're almost like stage plays that are put together to um, pull the heartstrings of people and and get big checks off uh, donors and uh yeah pretty concerning what you saying is a, a guy that will like raise money for you he's like really good at charity but he keeps like some crazy percentage for himself uh yeah so i I won't say the name names. Yeah, you know, oh, I don't know his name actually, but oh. yeah, no. So, um, the yeah people out there now that specialise in raising funds for charities, so they'll actually go to a charity and go, well, you know, I feel we could raise um fifty million dollars or more for you. 
Um, and of course, the charity go, wow, that'd be incredible. And they go, well, we can raise $50 million, but uh, we want 60% of it. And so for a lot of these shows, they go, okay, well, it's still we're still getting 40%. And literally, these people raise the money a pocketing, you know, tens of millions of dollars. And which is crazy. I mean, I, d- I don't know how, you know, they can justify getting away yeah. with it. Because, I mean, there's so many charities around What's the world. What's the legalities around that? I don't know. I, I, you know. I think they write it off as like admin fees and costs yeah. for raising and employing people and pretty disturbing and i think because like i'm not a big charity person like mm. i don't really give money like i, I yeah. always will give money to like guide dogs and you know shit that's sort of like counters for coffees and stuff but like yeah that's really as far as my charitability goes because like i've just got such a weird distrust for for it you mm. know you do see like i've had that experience that i was telling you about and i was like this is fucking very clear what's going on here and it it it's mm. it's really concerning that you know because it's like it is, and it is a good message and like there was you know i said there's one of the facts of like well i'll still sort of go along with it because if it helps one person you know then it's yeah it's worth it but it's it's such a fucking weird slippery slope isn't it and well you know i spent four and a half years of my life flying in and out of cambodia um become very passionate in what I was doing in, in, in helping and stuff and working in the field and it literally took me four years to work out what was going on and I felt really kind of stupid in a lot of ways that I just couldn't see it mm. but once the penny dropped then everything yeah it just all come together and and then when I when I left um, and some 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 of the people that had remained thought i was just off the rails and making these ridiculous allegations yeah and and stuff and then they all got it and they one by one they left and they they were the same they just go i just and they just felt foolish and yeah it was pretty but it it was kind of good in the way because i got to see it firsthand and i now now i could almost smell it um i've i've seen different charities and and stuff and met with them and yeah i don't know yeah there's just human nature though isn't it yeah it's human nature um but you know it's pretty twisted to use poverty to pull the heartstrings of people to essentially get money with some people are so um like disconnected though like narcissism is Mm a i feel like you want to talk about like mental health and the, the way that people talk about that shit these days man i think we need to start a conversation about narcissism because Mm. so many people it's just like they're so into things for themselves yeah that it becomes almost like this fucking pathological like psychotic thing Mm. like it's psychotic in my view Mm. to rip off a charity like you see poor people in cambodia the poorest Mm. of the poor Mm. and you can get a meal ticket out of that and like make a lot of money and it's like yeah that that seems to me like an extreme case of narcissism well, yeah, and what I've have found with a lot of these people involved with these charities, they almost get to a point where they feel that they're like a bit of a superhero. Yeah, you know, and they really gloat on what they're doing, but they're actually not. They're actually not doing it. You know, they're riding on their own bullshit. Yeah, basically, a lot of people that that is like they start spinning this web and then believing, and then thorough. Like at the start, they know they're full of shit. 
Mm. But then it's like the further down this mm. hole they go, like mm. you, your brain has a weird way of like actually believing the shit that you, you knew was a lie to start with. Well, it's pretty crazy when you see some of these uh, NGOs, as you call them, non-government organisations, these charities, and you see some of the motor vehicles they're getting in and they're driving yeah. around in brand new black Lexus four-wheel drives and they're chauffeur-driven. And and the problem for a lot of charities too that I found that um, they base themselves around major cities. Yeah. And and and. and you know, and, and none of them, none of them work together. They all work in opposition. Yeah, which was pretty crazy too, because there was a couple of tr- projects I worked on, and I thought, well, I should get in contact with this organisation over here because I know that they've used solar. Yeah. So I can get some advice on them about you know who they use, and they go, oh, you can't talk to them. I go, well, why not? Because they go, well, they're our opposition. opposition. I go, well, I don't get that because you're working in poverty. Wouldn't you? pull together and share resources and that and that was a bit of a thing too you know you go that I, I couldn't get my head around that yeah um yeah anyway and, and, and so this whole thing about being in cities then they only work in a certain radius and they go well why don't you work in these really really remote, remote areas? areas that's where the help is needed the most yeah well we don't work in those areas because it's uh, too far away and the reason it's too far away because it's inconvenient for them yeah they you can't live they, in a nice house and they, you can't drive your car on the nice roads and too far up in the air-conditioned cafes and yeah it's insane um what's some like you've shared some stories where like there's been some crazy success stories that you've had that have come out of like that you know the housing project with different families that you've helped like what's some of the more remarkable stuff that you've seen with that well, I mean, there's always a mixture of, you know, shock and, I mean, we we work with the bottom of the barrel, the poorest of the Like, poor. how poor are these people? Uh, so, like I might have told you, that, like, you know, one of the first houses um, that I ever built, there was still like a, a test house, um, was for a family at um, Compon Charm. Um, and the youngest daughter from that family was suckling from the local village dogs. Um, and... Um, I think she quite was about three and a half when I first met her. And unfortunately, that family's just gone from tragedy to tragedy. Um, they had a really nice mother. So the mother would have to go away and work in these distant rice fields and often wouldn't come back for days. And so the three young children with a gro- were with a grandmother. They had no house and they lived with their neighbours' livestock under the house because everyone keeps their livestock immediately under the house of a night time um and because coit's mother her grandmother had cataracts one day coit's um you know because they just eat like mashed rice with a little bit of fish or or fermented fish um, and stuff uh coit seen um this dog with a litter of pups and started um suckling he's become quite well known in the village of going around and and and, and suckling and, and the first time i met coit I could actually almost see that dog connection with her because I was watching the way that she was with other dogs when we were wandering around the village. It kind of always had that dog stare when dogs stare one another out. Yeah. She had lots of bite marks and scratches and things all over her. And then their mother got killed and oh, it was just... Anyway, the we actually the motorbike tours now look after those three kids. So they they they're living with an aunt but we sponsored the three children because we were really worried that they were going to disappear 
into human trafficking or something like that. Is that a big problem in Cambodia? Yeah, yeah. it can be a big problem. Um, families disappearing, children disappearing into Thailand, China. What's the market for that? Ah, uh, well, you know, you know, the sex industry. Um, big problem with um, um, parents going into Thailand. They end up in fishing boats, and they can be on a fishing boat for seven years and never reach land. Really? Yeah, yeah. It's been a big problem. Um, and you know, a few cases I've sort of been pretty close to where kids have disappeared and they've kind of been funneled, um, and you know through might be vietnam through and vietnam's pretty good like their border protection and that sort of stuff um but of course when there's money involved that you know people push in through different ways and, and the likes and but ultimately they'll, they'll end up in china and be married off yeah that seems so crazy that that shit still exists eh? oh it's big it's a big industry yeah the one thing like when we were over there because a bunch of the people that were on the tour had built houses through um, through the charity yeah. and that were still like sort of on the tours yeah. um, and they were saying that like some of the big resistance they get met with is like oh we should be helping at home first like what's yeah. your sort of thoughts on like that that thought process yeah sure so you know a lot of people say oh charity starts at home and yeah sure look it does um, and there's things that we openly get involved with still here in Australia um with some you know rural things we involved with um um a lot of uh wildlife uh, rescue centers and that i've got a bit of a, a thing yeah, for that yeah. i like to be involved with um tiktok i just got a lot earlier yep no worries um and of course um you know also in vietnam we work with a wildlife anti-trafficking uh, unit which has um had some really good success over the years because um, we ride in all these remote areas and 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 the likes um but yeah it's um look i think things with charity i think it's 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 just that general thing of people just being jaded yeah you know you met with tins you're getting confronted with people on streets you know want you to you know take up your time and you just go well you know they're getting paid to be there so that's you know yeah yeah, it's just a thing and i don't think people have a perspective here because like we've got poverty in australia yeah but like it's very rare yeah that there would be people living on rubbish dumps with babies sucking like suckling from dogs like we it's a different level Mm. and it 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 is like it made me think about it quite a bit to Mm. you know really wonder like that whole charity starts at home sort of conversation because there is definitely like a valid point for that sure like at what point is there like a global initiative to like just raise the standard of living from like the poorest most Mm. disadvantaged people in the world like Mm. what does the world look like if that level gets raised by quite a bit you know like how much better does it make the world as a whole i mean the difference that we see for for a a family that we work with that receive a house uh, yeah it just gives them the basic dignity um the they're healthier um yeah it, it, you know it changes their their life in a in in quite a dramatic way for very little money mm. um we have a bit of a thing that um which is it's always so we get people that say well don't other families in the village get jealous when someone gets a house and they don't and we actually never find that at all 
um, often the, the the other families in the village they'll go oh we're really we're really happy that that family got a house because their life was really difficult yeah. and everyone in the village is poor um, so they're really supportive of, of one another um, so yeah it makes a big difference um, we we have a bit of a thing so the families in general they get a house for free um, they sign a contract with us um, and the deal is you can't sell the house you can't hock it and you won't rent it and things like that so really it's to p- protect the house and sometimes you know we're working with dysfunctional families where you know the father might be on you know might be an alcoholic or whatever or, or, or the likes and you know often these families too are in debt they could only be like $50 in debt but you to know to make you, $50 in Cambodia yeah some of these families easy. are lucky to be earning a dollar a day and the the interest that they'll pay and often the money that they borrow it's usually because someone's been sick yeah um, and that's how often how they become landless too because um, a loan shark will come along um, offer money to anyone in the village wants to borrow a bit of money they come across as sort of being caring people to want to help people out but they're far from it they lend the money uh, they get their their basically their land title so if that family defaults enough they just take their land and so you know that's how a lot of the families end up on rubbish dumps um so but essentially you know all the families that we've given homes to the the success rate has been 99 percent. yeah and we work with local commune leaders and stuff like that in, in fact one of the the lead people with our housing program is a, the, number a local, one monk. the number one monk <laughs> how, how did that all come about the that uh we met a really long time ago um chun's actually quite famous uh in his own right super is there photos of him on the like internet if you typed it in yeah um probably um no. <laughs> number one monk no that's an internal joke yeah yeah uh chun so it's spelled c double h u n um and then uh ben um uh, uh, b a double n i think it is chun ben chun ben and one more n and then cambodia i've actually never googled his name uh oh there he is there there's a video there done by joe a while ago um no go go back and play that there's one of the guys from tempo though go down a bit yeah that video there Oh, so that's the global village housing video yeah so chun's always in bright orange saffron there he oh there's a couple of monks there but that's chun there on the left actually and so what was the story with him this is quite old. oh this video was done five years ago so yeah it's be rough be cool to see the um like the i mean i'm sure the yep. houses have changed so that's though. that's chun and um, so what was the story with him well there's there's one of the schools so that's oh, yeah. that is a school um and that's basically their their classroom so that's literally just a patch of dirt with yep. four desks and a whiteboard stuck to a tree uh yeah a blue board yeah and there's probably what 30 kids there 20 something kids there yeah so we found that the the couple of schools that we've done which have basically been wooden huts um oh, so you've actually made the schools yeah we just um we've done two schools in two years yeah um 
the first school we did, and I think it had like 85 students in the time we renovated the school. Oh, and so put, that's one of the houses there. Yeah. That's one of the old model houses. Uh, they look quite different uh, now. Oh, and we, we do bicycles and stuff yeah, like yeah. that. Yeah. So, yeah, with the school, sorry, 85 students. Oh, yeah. And, and the time we finished the school, it jumped to like about 185. Really? Yeah. Um, a big problem for a lot of these schools, um, particularly for girls that stop going to school, once they get to that um, point of age, um, um, they stop going to school because there's no toilets. Um, and you know no toilets no drinking water things like that so a big thing that we put in we put in toilet blocks and um, yeah right clean drinking water put in wells um, we've actually I think we've done something like about nearly 200 wells now um, we can do a well for like it's quite cheap you know for a well with a pump on it we can do it for about $300 really and I've seen these NGOs where they say oh you know it costs um, you know in the thousands and thousands of dollars yeah well i don't know why it's so expensive because our wells have been very um very successful um just hand pump but um yeah certainly makes a big difference to a lot of these um a lot of these um rural communities and the likes some areas you gotta be a little bit careful like places like compound charm there's actual uh natural arsenic in the ground oh really so yeah you you gotta be careful you're putting a well in there otherwise all the locals are starving their hair fall out and all sorts of horrible (laughs) things so you know it does pay to do a bit of research along the way (laughs) just don't start digging yeah how's your life changed with the charity stuff like i'm i'm sure that there would be like a definitely a level of fulfillment that the average person is not going to feel that doesn't not to say that you're fucking better than anyone or whatever um yeah or you're some angel saint but it's like you've started doing it it's gathered momentum and now you've changed so many people's lives and it's like it must be a crazy feeling to like sort of feel that you know as a as a guy that's just kind of like going through through life you know Oh, look, I mean, I guess even even though I'm a you know the the, the founder behind it, I, I certainly can't take all the credit. Um, it's the dedicated team that um, it's behind it that um, you know their hard work, and we've got a really good team. It's it's mainly made of um, up of of locals, and we've got some um, volunteers that have got involved, and you know people who have been on their motorbike tours and stuff like that have got involved. Um, but personally, yeah, look, I mean, it certainly does change the outlook of, on life. Um, you know, I don't have, I don't feel the need to have all the blinging cars I used to have and stuff like that. You know, I used to race Porsches and stuff for a while and, um, yeah, certainly don't feel the need for that anymore. But, yeah, no, I, I think, you know, you you have to get something out of it. And my thing out of it is a sense of achievement and just you know knowing that you've had that opportunity to to be able to help someone Mm. um and to be able to help them in the right way um and certainly not trying to be like a you know some knight in shining armor yeah because that that, that, you know you definitely like that was what was interesting like when we first spoke about the charity like Mm. you sort of associate those kind of people with um seems like it becomes a big part of their identity yeah. Whereas with you, it just it's like a just a thing that you do, as opposed to this like thing that you kind of attach your own self worth to. But uh, it's just interesting that you know, like you must get something out of it 
you know, I because I, I even know that like mm. it feels good for me with just this podcast to get people that message and say certain topics and certain guests yeah. have helped them, mm. and it's like this is on a whole different level, you know. It's yeah, look, it has been a, a, a quite a personal thing for me on a number of different levels as things have happened along the way. I mean, there's certainly been points of time where um, the initial running of it, you know, I was literally running out of my own money um, and I didn't think I could continue with it. And then, you know, and it was a lot of work, you know, taking up a big chunk of my life um, and I was finding I was sort of struggling with that. Um, And there's a fair bit of emotional part that's attached with it. Yeah, I bet. Um, And then... I just didn't want to give up on it and the likes. And then fortunately, um, Samantha, um, who I met some years ago, um, she's been fantastic um, helping me do things. And, and, well, she does a lot, actually, um, heaps. Um, then I also had that thorn in my side that, you know, that I've, I've kind of felt like I kind of almost got scammed for four and a half years, mm. volunteering my time, a big chunk of my life, um, gave up a lot of things and also probably neglected some of my family things back home. Um, and so I wanted to pro- kind of prove and put, a, I guess in my own way, a bit of faith back into the charity world that while we while we are registered as a charity, we actually weren't for a long time because I kind of almost had that beef that I just didn't want to be registered as a charity, but we actually had to by law. Mm. Uh, essentially, because I mean, really we more run on a social um, uh, a, a social enterprise background. So essentially, as we're building the houses, we make a little bit of profit that covers all the running costs and all that. And yeah, so it it's will, more like a socialist little environment that you're. Yeah, that's on. right. So you know, a, a lot of things of of keeping it all going is you know all these different elements. Um, and I mean, yeah, I mean, look, I mean. Um, I think you get hardened to it after a while. Mm. Um, you know, some people I've taken into, you know, different situations where they've been involved in one of our school building projects or a home build or whatever. Yeah, it really rattles people to, to tears. Um, and, you know, it's it's – and I still find it now even a home hand, handover. You know, the families are crying and all that. And, you know, they're not crocodile tears. You know, they're real tears of emotion and stuff. And I think for a lot of these families, when this sudden housing – because when the families get a house, they actually don't know they're getting it mm. literally until the day it arrives. Really? And, um, I, you know, I think, you know, there are families that have been through all sorts of challenges in their life, have been the poorest of the poor, and they've probably been scammed and ripped off and all that sort of thing. And all of a sudden – Someone comes along and go, well, we're going to give you a house. And they kind of go, well, well I've heard this before. Yeah, where's the punchline, you know? Yeah. Um, and in fact, one of the very first houses I built for a family, out, which was on a rubbish dump, um, a month and a half later, I went back to visit them and they had these plastic bags in the corner. And I said, oh, you know, what are the plastic bags? You know, what's going on here? And they just said, oh, that's just their stuff. So, you know, packed, and they go, "What was? Why is it packed? What's going on?" And they just said, "Oh, because they, 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 they were just expecting at some point they were just going to get kicked out. Mm. They just couldn't get their head around that this house was actually theirs, mm. and so we had to reaffirm them. Go, no, this is your house, and this is before we did these agreements and and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, okay. um, yeah. So they just couldn't get their their head around it. But yeah, no, it's overall, it's 
yeah, it does really change the outlook on life and and stuff. You, you, so you do get something out of it, mm. and for you know for good good merit too. Did you always see your life being like this when you were younger? Not really. No. Like it's kind of you've lived yeah. a really crazy life between all the businesses and the the work that you've done. Like I don't know. Like what do you think has led you to live such a weird life? Oh, I mean, you know, um, I guess I've been fairly generous. Like, you know, there has been people that I've been able to help out um, through life, you know, different things. Um, I don't know what makes me, you know, I guess everyone's different. I yeah. couldn't, really, couldn't really put myself in a nutshell. Um, my own upbringing was a bit of a bit of a challenge. Yeah, because well, um, you got ten siblings, right? Yeah, yeah. That's crazy in itself. Yeah, and it was very much a dysfunctional family, multiple fathers, and and that sort of stuff. And I didn't grow up with most of my brothers and sisters, and that sort of thing. Um, and you know, moved around a lot, and and all that sort of stuff. So, and then I, I certainly, you know, I started business from a very young age and I, I learned from a very young age that it was going to be the only way I'm going to get anywhere in life is you know on my own bat and um, so I, I think that sort of makes you appreciate things a bit harder because you've I've had to work for it all not that I have a lot um, but I've, everything I have I've, I've worked for mm. you know um, and I think there was a it's always been a bit of a stepping stone and proven stone you know like it's like anything in life you know like when you get your first car, you kind of go, "Hoo I got my car," you know. And then it's the next thing. The next thing's like renting the house or buying a house. And it's all those achievements. And I think I sort of had that all the way along. And I, I left school from a very young age. I left school and started an apprenticeship when I was fifteen. I didn't have a very good education, mainly because I wasn't there most of the time. Um, but um, you know, and I kind of had that thing that I wanted to prove to people that I could mm. be someone and, and all that. And then I think it was just that natural thing that I kind of get to that point where I was doing quite well for myself. You know, I had property and cars and all that sort of stuff. And and then I'd seen that sort of thing with you know, I've, I do like challenges and 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 thinking out, out outside the box. Um, and then to see the poverty in Cambodia, and I thought, you know. I thought I could do something. Wasn't really sure what it was I could do. Uh, it took me a bit of time to find my way, and I'm, you know, I come up with this housing design, which has been yeah quite successful. So mm. I'm pretty happy with that. What was the first business that you did? Like, where did you start? Sunday Market. Really? Yeah, me and my brother. Um, so a bit of a thing was we'd go around to other storeholders so it was very much then it was like a real trash and treasure thing yeah people just go there to sell their crap out of their like garage a flea market sort like of a deal. flea market buying stuff off buying their stuff and then setting up our own store with the stuff that we just bought and then um and then i come up with a bit of an idea of ripping people's plants out <laughs> So, like, going through, like, um, I don't know if, if I can still be arrested for this or not. <laughs> it was a long time. I think I was about eight years old. And uh, selling plants, literally no pots. <laughs> <laughs> and he's just going and fleece people's plants from their garden and sell it back to them. <laughs> <laughs> pretty, pretty much, yeah. Entrepreneurial spirit yeah. right there. Yeah, we're, we make coin. But we just waste it on food and 
pinball machines and stuff like that. that yeah. And that, what was your, when did you get into like legitimate business? About three weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, um, I had, a, I, 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 um, uh, multiple jobs sort of over the years when I was younger. Um, but then I, what did you do your apprenticeship in? Oh, I was actually a plaster or mole maker. Really? Yeah, it was a bloody horrible trade. Yeah. I wait, I, I, um, I dumped that after about 18 months. And, um, you know, there was dudes working there that had been there for like 30 years and I'm just looking at these guys and I was just assholes and just, mm. you know, it was just a dead-end job. And, um, you know, you, we, we were basically working in this plaster factory which was once a butter factory and it was on this river and, it, you know, it's just crawling with rats and, <laughs> yeah, it was just in a an absolute shithole um, in a small country town and then my parents moved and so I had to hitchhike to this job and literally it was like 35 k's but this is like hitchhiking like 4.30 in the morning to try and get there at 8 in the morning and it was like foggy mornings car would go past once an hour you know yeah I imagine it'd be pretty hard to be on time for work yeah and then sometimes you know I'd finish like work at like 3.30 3.30 in the afternoon but I wouldn't get home until like 7 o'clock at night just from getting hitchhiking and that so it was yeah pretty challenging oh anyway so you know I had different jobs and stuff over the years but um, I actually started the company and won the business award in 1991 uh, the business award was sponsored by Operation Livewire it was sponsored by Shell Australia oh yeah um, there was about 3,000 entrants and I come second uh, so that was a bit of a thing at the time I'd already started the business I was working from a garage of a rental property uh, doing furniture restoration yeah um, and then over the course of years I you know pretty much furniture restoration was always a one man band um, mine was kind of a, a bit like that a little bit bigger but then I um, took it to a, a next level of um, I got involved in doing insurance repair work probably looking after high end insurance claims um, you know I had clients with $200,000 dining room tables and really how do you, you get know, a $200,000 dining room uh, table you'd be yeah, wealthy very wealthy yeah it what might be something it? like a what makes a $200,000 yeah. I don't know does it cook your dinner yeah well well funny enough I, I when they were building Crown Casino I um I was following that with great interest because Crown Casino you know they built it in the mid 90s cost 2.3 billion dollars to build oh, really and um I ended up before the probably opened I ended up getting a tracking a guy by the name of Glenn Morecambe down and I, I the long and short of it I got the, the, the furniture fit out contract for Crown Casino so there was 15,500 pieces of furniture on the property plus all the stone work and timber work and gold leaf work throughout Crown and looking after that famous suite that they had that was $28,000 a night to stay there and all that sort of thing so that was a pretty big gig that I got um yeah, so but so, still, it stayed always stayed really small. Never had many staff. That's the thing that like all of our conversations and the random stories that pop up. It's like you've always had like obviously such a crazy nose for like the hustle, and you could always you know like tracking down that one guy to get that one contract. Yeah, like, there's just something that you seem to have always been able to do, which is like 
figure out how to be in the right place at the right time because like when people could say like oh that's lucky but like you can sort of manufacture luck in business with the right ideas right yeah i mean that was the thing with crown i you know they were talking about you know how lavish i mean crown crown casino has its own postcode and um you know they were showing you know glimpses of this you know lavish you know fit out and things like that and I thought, I wonder if they got someone to look after it. And it actually took me, I think it took me about three weeks to actually track this guy down. And once I got a hold of him, he said, when can you come in? So I did a, a whole walk through the entire property before it opened its doors. And he said, what can you do? So we walked through and can you do that? Can you do that? And I go, yeah, I could do all that. And um, yeah, I had the, the skills for it and all that. And yeah, had my own workshop in there and and stuff. That's got to be like, because that that is like really like a life changing thing. Like you would have had to just stop pretty much everything else and just like move in and do that, right? Yeah, it was to a certain degree, but the the insurance industry was like a bit of a feast or famine. So you know, a big storm would hit an area, and all of a sudden we'd be inundated with work. So I was like balancing between the casino and doing the insurance work and all that sort of thing, and it paid really well. Um, and then of course, once I got this contract with Crown, it, it sort of I got this real status, you know, because mm. some of the some of the um, some of the claims I'd work on have been these high end customers, uh, blue ribbon policy holders, as they like to call them. Yeah, yeah. And um, you know, they don't want just Joe Blow wandering into their house and working on their prized possessions and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And so, some sometimes the loss adjusts to go, oh, well, this is the guy that looks after Crown Casino. Yeah. They go, oh, all right. What's he do there? Oh, he looks after all the fit out. So, you know, it was a good thing to have, you know. Such a bizarre, like... Yeah, it was. Like, it's a... You think about, like, ways to make money. Yeah. And it's like that, it seems like such a, like, a left field way. But, like, somebody's got to do it, right? Like, somebody yeah. has to be the guy that does that fit out. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, they spend a lot of money in doing it. Um, who was it that were touring with that you know he was um, oh chook that does yeah, all that. that that's that's sort of like along the same lines like that's right one of the guys chook he made this business out of doing super yacht fit outs mm. it's like how do you make it where do you start to make a business of doing super yacht fit outs and he started by just basically like going down to the docks yeah and watching the people come on and off these super yachts because in cairns they're all the all the super yachts they'll sort of like tour and they'll pull in at, at mm. the harbor so like he would just go and he luckily had all the skills and then he ended up doing like the crazy like some of his stories man and just like the craziest shit it's like the ways that you can glass staircases yeah cut carbon fiber like huge carbon fiber mm. pieces and like they're moving million dollar paintings around so that he can do yeah like work on these boats and it's like there's just so many random ways to make money that people don't think of, right? Well, that's it. I mean, and so when you've got these, you know, multi-million dollar boats and things like that and stuff gets banged and knocked around and, and all that and starts looking shabby, you need someone that can ideally come in there and do restoration work. I think Chuck was saying that they are doing restoration work and the like. So, you know, it was the same with us. You know, it was insane to understand that people would have you know we were we were an authorized repairer for steinway you know you're working on a piano it's a two hundred and twenty thousand dollar piano i mean you know it's pretty insane to think that people spend that much money what makes a piano worth that much money 
I'm not quite sure, but um, they're very expensive. <laughs> you break <laughs> yeah. them, big problem. <laughs> oh, yeah, big problem. I mean, it was funny. <laughs> we, you know, I, I remember once I worked on two Steinway pianos at um, Melbourne Faculty of Music, and they had two, and they were actually they're going to sell them or trade them in because they'll buy two new ones, which were about $220,000 each. So they wanted me to go over these existing pianos that I had to try and fix them up a bit so they could sell them, get a high price or trade them in or whatever. And the sides were all damaged on the pianos. And because when they'd roll them on and off the stage, in and out the back, the door wasn't quite wide enough. Mm. So every time they go through the doorway, they go bang, 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 bang. And because they're in this black polyester finish, so they're all chipped and damaged. So instead of spending a few hundred dollars and making the doorway a little bit bigger, they were just destroying these pianos. So it was good to actually see that while I was there working on these pianos, there was actually a guy putting an additional door in that I think it was cost about 500 bucks or something, you know. Yeah, that seems crazy to have a quarter million dollar piano and you're ruining it because of a $300 doorway. That's right, that someone couldn't go, yeah, maybe we should make the door bigger. Yeah, and so you weren't working on any of like the actual musical components of the piano? No, right? no. So it was just, just like all the timber work and yeah, stuff like that? Yeah, that's right, yeah. And then that, is that the same time when you started doing like the Porsche racing and stuff? How'd you get into all that? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, well, it was just club level stuff. Um, I was never a frontline front runner by any means. Money built makes speed. Yeah. Um, I was pretty good at steering a car, but, uh, you know, never had the, the, the real money behind me. And, uh, yeah, no, I just sort of always had a bit of a thing for Porsches and stuff like that. And, uh, yeah, just got into that for a while and, yeah, it was good. That would have been pretty... That's like one of my things I'd like to do at some point is race a car. Oh, yeah. But it's money. Yeah. yeah. It's definitely like a... You've, yeah, it's a pay-to-play sport. I think it's easier now with uh, modern cars in technology. It's a lot easier to set a car up. Mm. But, of course, what looks easy once you look at it... I mean, it's a bit like looking at, you know, like a, a trophy truck or yeah, whatever. Yeah, yeah. When you, when you start looking at them closely and you see what's in them, and it's no different to, you know... Porsche Car Club, you know, you look at some of these cars and from the outskirts, and you know they're still road registered, but the money yeah, that's so put yours, into them was yours road, road yeah, registered, the still, one that you were racing, still road registered, probably not roadworthy if I had to get it re-registered, yeah, yeah. but yeah. Um, how was your experience at Fink? Because after meeting, so Toby was on the tour, uh, and it was after Dakar, which unfortunately he couldn't ride because of his wrist. Yeah. But then you jumped on board as one of Toby's sponsors and then yeah. actually went out to Fink. What was that experience like compared to all the racing that you've done in the past? Oh, I mean, I think overall, I reckon it's probably the best motoring event I've been to in Australia by far. Yeah. And and for that is it was seeing all the people who were there camping alongside the track yeah. and got their fires going, having a beer and... Yeah, I, 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 you know, and it was a real journey getting there. I mean, fortunately for me, we, we went there in a helicopter. <laughs> so <laughs> It was a journey to get there. Yeah. We, uh, we're in an R44. Yeah. Dropped the fuel cap in the desert. Yeah, yeah. So Leon that was on the tour with us um, had a helicopter or a few. And, uh, yeah, so we, we flew there and we were sort of like just bar hopping and that was pretty cool. Well, not bar hopping, but overnight stays yeah, in places yeah. that had bars. Um, but yeah, no, I, I thought it was fantastic, and um, I certainly look forward to going to the one next year. Are you gonna? You think you're gonna be on board with that for 
a bit to come, you reckon? Might have to sell my soul again to um, <laughs> finance it or something. Bloody money uh, drives a hard bargain, doesn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's uh, hard to get space on that truck these days. It seems like a quite a coveted little uh, piece of real estate. Yeah, I've, I've still got strong interest to actually have some signage on the tile shaft. On the tail shaft? Well, it's always... I remember oh, an old friend of mine years ago, he was racing a V8 supercar and um, he put his car on the roof and it was one of the best bits of advertisement he had and someone actually had advertisement under the car and it just sat there on its roof. There'd be... There'd definitely... That'd be like a spot in V8s, eh? You'd have to think yeah. that there'd be some... Yeah, yeah, that'd be like a worthwhile piece of... And seeing the way that Toby drives, the possibility of being... On oh, its roof. Yeah. Highly likely. <laughs> Toby will run into a big Man, I, I just couldn't believe that the air. he get, I mean, he, he drives that car like it was a dirt bike. It's crazy. Yeah. yeah. It's so crazy when, when you think about all of those guys that are in the trophy trucks. Like when they pre-run, they're in cars, but they can't use the actual trophy truck. So yeah. none of those guys... And this is what I think makes him so good at that event yep. is none of those guys pre-run it at speed. The only time that they really learn the track at speed is in their race runs. Toby's the only dude that can get out of his trophy truck and onto a bike and go, really, he can go faster than what he can go in the trophy truck and learn that track at that speed and know every hole know every turn but at speed none of those mm. guys have that advantage and i just think like it cannot be overstated how big of a deal that is to that's the reason he can just jump in those trophy trucks and just and the way that he can push through the dust compared to those other yep. guys because they're driving blind and he he's been at that speed like he knows exactly what's coming up and when it's coming up yeah, someone was telling me that some points of the track he actually drives. That you know, if there's dusty, he actually drives by the top of the trees. He yeah. knows the top of the trees that well. Isn't that just insane? Okay. Yeah, that is insane. And some of those points where they just get this massive air, it's you know, it's it's kind of like on a kink on the track and all that sort yeah. of stuff. Yeah, it's insane. Those those trucks are just really crazy pieces of machinery, aren't they? That first morning, we we we'd gone out about. 4.30 in the morning so we got ahead of the trophy truck and because we were in the couple of the support vehicles um, and you know then we, we stopped at the point and it was on a bit of a crest and we are waiting for because we knew Toby was basically on on the pole run mm. um, to come along I mean you could literally hear him coming from about what sounded like three kilometres away you could just hear this roar and this dust in the distance and yeah it was like a kind of got it now like they get that real chill and you go holy shit here he comes he's fucking moving fucking on it yeah yeah and just yeah that was impressive do you think that you'd ever do like you'd ever get in and do that race in like a buggy or a truck or do you think that's something you'd ever do i'd be great to do it um i'd probably be the slowest um but yeah no it would be great um uh, those side by sides look pretty cool they do look pretty cool eh? and there were some pretty fast side by sides there because there was actually not that long after toby went through there was a, a side by side and i was really surprised that it was right up there um i don't know whose it was or, or whatever but yeah jeez yeah they're pretty fast yeah well some of them are like thousand cc's and got like turbos and shit in mm. them don't they yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely and they're only going to improve from here too 
like they're going to get better and better obviously could you imagine if that becomes like a real possibility to like really race that because i think right now it's a bit of a punish but like it'd be cool if you could do that race fairly comfortable in in one of those side by sides like as they get better like mick said well i was i was driving one of the vehicles that um was um i don't know whose vehicle it was it certainly wasn't mine but i i drove it from alice springs to to fink and you know you got that that dirt road that follows the track yeah and um you can't help but uh, as you're driving it you kind of get faster and faster and yeah at one point we we're cruising along and i kind of looked out and we'll keep up with one of the buggies on the service road there on the surface road fucking hell <laughs> we were we were in a four it was like a ford f-250 or something like that we're cut like trying to recover one of toby's vehicles um one of the years fuck i don't think is he i don't think he's ever even finished it um but yeah so anyway one of the years that he he wrecked the car and um the whole right front end just completely got ripped out on that road because we were just hooking had a trailer on and the boys are just fucking hooking into this thing and the whole front end of the car just got fucking ripped off so that had to get we were going to get toby because his truck was on a flatbed and then this thing yeah. had to get put on a flatbed i think it cost like 10 grand to fix this fucking f-150 it was pretty funny that day when we when we headed off early to be in front of the trophy truck and the likes and uh robbie madison was with us oh yeah 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 and we had to pick him up from the casino in alice springs yeah and uh then we headed off and um at some point because you know it's still pitch black and then in the middle of nowhere there was this atm <laughs> and go what the fuck there was an atm a phone box some old motorbike and stuff and it was just this really weird thing and then further along we stopped at um someone's camp and we just pulled up and they're, oh, they're all yeah. still asleep in their swags and stuff like that and man it was so funny like yeah it was just classic but, but then dad knew they they we grew up racing with them yeah, so right. dad rocks yeah. up to this like campsite in the middle of fucking nowhere and um it was like what six in the morning or something by yeah. this point they're all still in their swags and didn't Robbie wasn't he trying to get oh, he, he cooked get up it? he cooked up a storm yeah so they yeah. just stopped to do breakfast or something and then yeah. the boys jump out of their tent and we grew up racing with them Jaden Etherington and then he's like Pete what the fuck and then these like Pete and Robbie Madison rock up with Thatcher and they just end up having bacon and eggs on in the middle of the fucking desert randomly with the people we grew up yeah. with yeah that, that was, was one of the the cool things with, I mean obviously I've been up there so much as a kid with going up into Cape York yeah. but like it's pretty amazing how much space is in australia like we've just got this country we've got obviously a lot of people living it but like you go north from cairns and it's just like it's just space just open space beautiful landscape like i just don't think many australians really appreciate and i think the think is the same like when you Mm. go through you know you ride through the simpson desert to get out there or whatever it is you know however you do get out there across you know across the nullarbor from adelaide to perth it's like we just live in such a vast land. Yeah, it is big. I mean, as you know, I, I've driven up in the the mighty Defender from uh, from Melbourne, from Victoria, um, with a couple of dirt bikes and that on the back, and the swag and all the gear, and and I've done a fair bit of back road through cattle stations and stuff in the four wheel drive, you know, to 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 get to Cairns and just taking these different routes and yeah it's amazing i mean it is such a big country it's insane and so diverse like from where you come from you know when you're in like like in the bottom of victoria 
yeah. to then the very tip of Australia. Mm. Like it's pretty insane just the types of terrain that you even kind of pass through and the different landscapes, the different um, weather patterns, the different like everything. It's so insane, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think for anyone that hasn't done it, you've got to do it. Mm. Uh, it's well well worth it, and you know we you know we're like swagging it every night, and you know in those places we're staying where we're pulling into a little town that's a little country pub, and we're camping at the back, and you know they were the real highlights too. In between, so funny. you know it was as much fun off the bike as well it was on, and um, you know pull up these pubs, cold beer, good local food, you know yeah it was fantastic. How's that? We one night we're at the pub at Cohen, and we're all, we'd had a, definitely a few drinks. We we're all pretty lit by the time we went to bed, so we <laughs> all get. There was me, Jason, Chuck were the last ones up, so we're in the swag, and uh, oh yeah, yeah, and this yeah. this music starts up at the pub, and we sort of saw this dude setting up all this PA shit. And yeah, I thought he was a DJ or something. Yeah, we thought this DJ was coming, but this dude basically just played backing tracks and sang karaoke, <laughs> and he was maybe the worst singer i've ever heard in my entire life and we we're all like tucked away in the swags did you you got up didn't you and no you no I, I said to you, oh, you didn't I go on, in the end can you hear how bad this guy is <laughs> i mean he's so bad i want to go and watch it <laughs> like it was full on eh? but like the whole trip was just full of the most random shit like that eh? Plenty, plenty of random stuff along the <laughs> way um, alright so we'll wrap this up it's been bloody two and a half hours um, has it really yeah Shit. it goes quick um, so people how can they get in touch with the, the motorcycle tours if they want to see the real Vietnam see the real Vietnam um, well yeah so Vietnam motorbike tours um, with that said it is a bit of a thing um, Asians being Asians and, and stuff that um, our name has become a bit generic and um, yeah. people have um, started uh, using our name and sometimes our photos on their websites and all sorts of things but our website is quite distinctive in the in the logo and all that sort of thing but yeah it's vietnammotorbiketours.com and of course over in Cambodia where we run dirt bike tours it's cambodiamotorbiketours.com Yep, so we are going back in February. We're already, we're locked in for another another trip. Well, I'm yeah, sure. Is we're it doing yep, um, early February, and we're doing three countries. So we're we're starting in Nha Trang in Vietnam, which is where our home base and our headquarters is. So uh, I'll get to coast. go to your rib house. You will, yeah. yeah. Just got a ribs restaurant over there. How many ribs do you go through a month? One and a half tons. <laughs> One and a half tons. Yeah, of ribs a that's month. something like that. Yeah. <laughs> That's insane. It, it, it obviously varies a bit with seasons yeah. and all that, but yeah, yeah, it's a lot. Of, that's just in rib. So, <laughs> that's yeah, so it's gnarly. Eh? Popular, good food. Yeah. Um, yeah, so you know, so the ride that we're doing, uh, we start in Nha Trang and we basically head to the Cambodian border, uh, cross over in the Cambodia, um, cross into Stong Tray, um, then we make our way to Siem Reap, which is home of the the mighty Angkor Wat. Um, and then we'll spend a day exploring the temples there, and then from there make you our said way. They're like crazy temples, right? I uh, you haven't seen temples until you've seen these. Really, it's off the hook. Yeah, um, absolutely amazing. Yeah. What's the what? What would we Google? I want to. I wanna uh, just Google uh, Anchor What. No, that oh yeah, there's the spelling there on the right. A N G K O R. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, so then after that, we'll make our way to... Fuck. We'll make our way to the border of southern Laos. and Dude, we'll that's go through ridiculous. There. Yeah, the photos don't do it justice, so when you see it firsthand, uh, yeah, no, it's a... That's incredible. The, the, so that that big building there, so that's Angkor Wat itself, and that's a moat all the way around the the main structure, and that's to actually keep the ground stabilize the you know the the pressure in the ground to stop oh, it yeah. collapsing. But apparently that moat took twenty eight years to hand dig. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah, I can't wait for that because I remember you telling me about that on the on the Cape trip, but mm. I never actually googled it. Um, so yeah, so through there and then into southern Laos, yeah, um, and um, through some really remote areas there, and then we cross back into Vietnam, and we'll actually finish back into Nha Trang. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, so nice big loop. Um, so yeah, anyone can uh, jump on that website, book a tour from themselves. Is that tour full, or is there still places on our tour? I think that's done because we've got another tour running at the same time. Yeah. Okay. So at that time, yeah, it's pretty pretty busy. Uh, and then uh, Global Village Housing is the name of uh, your the charity that builds the houses for the um, people in Cambodia. Yep. I would like to do a Gypsy Tales house. So I think at some point we're probably going to start like a bit of a GoFundMe page or something like that. Just it'd be really cool to raise uh, enough money to just build one house um, through the yeah, listeners cool. of the podcast. So that's mm. going to be a little bit of a goal of mine. Yep. Uh, hopefully we can uh, hopefully we can get something going with that. Um, but yeah, it's been awesome. I'm glad you could come in and uh, on your way back through Melbourne. And well, yeah, I mean we've had some uh, awesome adventures already this year, and um, we've got um, well, I mean it's not long until February, right? So yep. it's back on again. Back Helmet, on helmets on. Helmets on. Thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And, thanks for uh, having me. It's been cool to learn a little bit more about like your backstory and some of the other yeah. stuff that you're into because obviously you pick up little bits and pieces. You know, I feel like there's still so much more stuff that obviously you don't cover, but. Um, yeah, no, thanks for coming on, mate. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Appreciate it.